I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Dr. Bill Harford in Eyes Wide Shut. One of the things that you and I do as good and generous and positive readers of texts, whether we're talking about novels or TV shows or films or whatever, one of the things that we will do is go in with a open mind and a positive heart. We want to appreciate things in their best light. Yes. Would you say that's true? I would say that's definitely true. Yeah. And one of the places that that takes <laughs> us is a willingness to acknowledge that certain interpretations, certain textual readings might be valid, might be present in the text, but as we so often say, you've got to want it. Right. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick makes a lot of people want it. <laughs> a lot of people over the years have looked at his body of work and have sought mm. additional layers of meaning, of significance, of symbolism. And so it. much so, in fact, that he has taken on, particularly posthumously, this characterization of a genius filmmaker, of, of a mercurial genius, of someone who is so subtle and so masterful in his mm. manipulation of the audience that really any interpretation of any of his films must be valid. I mean, not everyone gets a whole documentary dedicated to the discussion of conspiracy theories which arise from a fairly straightforward horror movie. <laughs> I'm referring, of course, to Room 237, the documentary made about 1980s The Shining. Mm. We are not particularly Kubrick fans. Is that fair to say? We're not, which is weird because you compared him earlier today to Lynch, particularly this film, particularly Eyes Wide Shut to Lynch. I would maybe go so far as to say only this film, but yes, I think this is his Lynchiest moment for sure. It, it, it is, yeah. And I will forgive Lynch so much and follow his magic, but I think that the Stanley Kubrick magic doesn't really hold my heart. I think that Kubrick's reputation kind of gets in the way, though. Lynch is so open and magical and so like right. willing to just be spontaneous and let these accidents be what they are. Mm -hmm. And perhaps Stanley Kubrick was like that on set, too. In fact, many stories attest that that's exactly how Stanley Kubrick was. But his reputation as this master puppeteer, right. his reputation of precision and of excellence and of an absolutely indefatigable demand on his cast and crew, yeah. I think that those two things stand in opposition. I don't think that you I can agree. have accidental brilliance and a complete painstaking taskmaster <laughs> on the same project. And overall, I think that Kubrick is, in fact, more the former than the latter. I think his reputation as, you know, a, a Fincher, as a Myers, as mm -hmm. someone who demands a hundred takes of every single action, he did do a hundred takes of every single action, but it was in pursuit of something rather than forcing his actors and his crew to conform to his didactic directorial vision, mm -hmm. right? He is reportedly, particularly in this stage in his career, a very collaborative filmmaker and just very relaxed about the passage of time. If you come on set and you're not feeling it today, don't worry about it. Go back to your room. Just go hang out. We'll shoot it all tomorrow. No one is watching the clock wow. on this set. That's cool. Which is why this is the longest shoot in history. The in Guinness history. Book of World Records Whoa. says that Eyes Wide Shut is the longest film shoot 400 uninterrupted days. That's not the complete shoot. They just had to take a break then for a little while. Yeah. 400 uninterrupted days, almost two years of active production on a shoot that was supposed to last for three months. Oh, my God. We are going to talk all about this film, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's capstone to his career, the movie that 
was completed to some extent shortly before his death and released right after he died. We're going to talk about this entire film. We're going to break it down and we're going to try and figure out if there is any there there. (laughs) Before we do that, before we even get to the trailer game, a quick word of warning. I know that we're like an explicit podcast. I know we occasionally say the F word and we're going to say it a lot this time. I think so. The discussion that we have of this film is necessarily going to be really pretty sexual pretty explicit yeah Yeah. so if you were listening to this with kids in the car then maybe not this one maybe <laughs> go back and listen to our discussion of jerry Maguire, which was really sweet <laughs> yeah elizabeth it's your turn for the trailer game how are you feeling feeling confident feeling ready you know how can you get it wrong <laughs> that's a great point you could say anything <laughs> and someone on reddit would cite it as the proof of their personal pet theory about this film You're absolutely right. Okay, here we go. Just random word poetry. Let's go. Okay. Bill, do you know what sex is? I have never heard of sex. Do you know what? A cult is? I have definitely never heard of a cult. Wink to camera. I think that sex might supposed to be good, but only bad people have it. So how can it be good? Maybe I want to be bad. Hmm. I should look into this for both of us. I'm sorry, darling. I checked it out. Sex is definitely bad. And it's for bad people and only bad people do it. And you and I, we'll just have to keep having boring married sex and never talk again. But let's fuck. This Christmas, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. So to clarify, we like Nicole Kidman. Yeah. She's terrible in this. It's someone's fault. I'm sure that's not hers. I think think it's Alice's fault. First of all, okay, I said this to you this morning, but I'm going to say it again first thing on the podcast. There are no characters in this movie. These two people are just weird man-shape, woman-shape. I, I, I don't quite understand. Alice, especially, though, is just walking around half asleep, speaking so slowly. <laughs> I don't... Like, once she's high, so it's like, okay, I can forgive that. And once she's supposed to be drunk. But basically, all the time. I, I don't know, man. There, there are some performance choices happening here. Yeah. I don't know if they were hers. Let's kind of take our temperatures right here yeah. at the beginning. Because obviously, you are not enthusiastic about this movie. I'm not enthusiastic about the script. There, is, there are a lot of things about the movie that I find really lovely and haunting and beautiful. The production design is over-the-top extraordinary. But the movie doesn't do anything for two hours and 40 minutes. And for a movie that's about a sex cult, it's so boring. I'm so intrigued by this. Yeah. And I mean, I can't refute any of that. I mean, I I think I can refute your uh, assertion that the production design is great because some of the production design is extremely bad. Hey, did you know that this was supposed to be New York? Like, actually, really New York. 
and not the corner of a soundstage at Pinewood and some dubious rear projection. Wow. I confess that did not bother me. I liked those outside shots of the, of him walking in New York at night, although there was like nobody there. There's nobody there, right? They famously no, say no. that at nighttime in New York, there's nobody there. It's known as the city that, that goes to sleep, right? I liked that, though. It made it feel so creepy and eerie. Yes, but not in any way authentic. Not in any way authentic. Like, this does but not feel... I don't think the movie wants to be authentic. Well, and that's partly the thing, is that it feels so much like a dream from the jump. Yes. And oh, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, yes. I, I think that I'm generally... I'm at least interested in possible readings of this film. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in the possibility that what Nicole Kidman is doing in particular is not just conscious, not just deliberate, but is in fact good, that is in fact ambitious, and that she is hitting at the heart of something about this film hmm. that isn't necessarily translated to the audience directly, which is to say that I guess I'm letting her off the hook, I suppose. But I think that, yeah, I think there's a complexity there that we'll hopefully get into. I guess we should begin by talking about Kubrick himself, right? Sure. Yeah, let's. So let's do the quick biography here. Kubrick's born in Manhattan in 1928. He graduates high school with a D-plus grade average, which, coupled with the mass of returning soldiery from the European conflict Mm. in particular, means that college is just not on the table. He gets a job as a photographer and, rather charmingly, as a chess hustler in Washington Square Park. Wow. Which is cool. That is cool. He takes a few (laughs) night classes in photography at the City College of New York. But then by 1951, he produces his first short film on a rented camera, a 16 minute black and white boxing documentary called Day of the Fight. He makes it for $3,900 and sells it to RKO Pathé for $4,000. That's wow. a $100 oh, profit, Yikes. which is more than a lot of movies make. It is. He quits his photography job. RKO Pathé give him the money to produce another short documentary, this one called Flying Padre, about a Catholic priest in New Mexico whose parish is so large that he needs to take a prop plane from one church to another wow. in order to deliver his sermons. By the middle of the following year, Kubrick's ready to start making narrative features. He shoots the anti-war movie Fear and Desire for around $50,000, and it loses money. He goes on to direct another documentary called The Seafarers to make money for his next feature, which is called Killer's Kiss, which is released in 1955 and also loses money. Despite failing to achieve this commercial success, Kubrick is making a name for himself as an inventive and intelligent and painstaking director. He's hired to write and direct an adaptation of the Lionel White novel Clean Break, which is released in 1956 under the name The Killing. This time, the budget's $320,000, and it loses money. Really setting up a chain here. (laughs) It impresses MGM enough, though, that they hire Kubrick to direct an adaptation of the Humphrey Cobb novel Paths of Glory, which is released in 1957, and, drumroll, actually makes a very modest profit, $1.2 million off of a budget of 900000 and Kubrick has arrived. And from there, it's Spartacus in 1960. This is the last film that he produces in the U.S. before moving to England full-time in 1961. He produces Lolita in 62, Doctor Strangelove in 64, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 68, A Clockwork Orange in 71, Barry Lyndon in 75, The Shining in 1980, and Full Metal Jacket in 1987. And that is it until Eyes Wide Shut in 1999, which is, as I said, released four months after Kubrick's death in London. Dismissing the first two features, which Kubrick did in his life, he considered them his like practice work. <laughs> he didn't really count them in his filmography. That's 11 films in 43 years, never twice in the same genre, never mm. twice with the same techniques. And every one, an artifact, every one, a studied piece 
by a man considered one of the great masters of the form. What do you mean by not with the same techniques? In every film, he would come up with some new way of shooting, right? We created very elaborate sets for 2001 A Space Odyssey so that we could Mm. do the zero-G stuff in a way that was really convincing and honestly as good as anything that we could make today. It's outrageous how good some of that stuff is. He invents of course, the Steadicam for The, the Steadicam for The Shining, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He invents a whole new way of processing film for Barry Lyndon so that he can light the sets naturally with candlelight, but they won't be you know, entirely black when mm-hmm. you're watching the film later. For Eyes Wide Shut, he invents a whole new way of shooting and processing the film so that you shoot very quickly and then develop over a longer period of time, which is what gives you all of this intensity of light it's Mm. what makes each of these tiny little points these twinkle lights in the background yeah it makes each of them distinct and radiant and makes all the color so saturated that's Mm. an entirely new chemical process because we're still shooting you know chemically on film that is my favorite thing probably about the movie it looks sumptuous it really does it looks so luxurious and then when it doesn't look luxurious for example when we're in dr bill's office Mm -hmm. it looks so austere (laughs) yeah it's just yeah so (laughs) grimy and terrible Uh uh-huh So what in Kubrick's filmography stands out to you? We mentioned The Shining. We mentioned 2001. Are you a fan of Dr. Strangelove? I can't imagine you're a fan of Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, (laughs) most of them I haven't seen. Uh, I've seen most of Dr. Strangelove. It's my dad's favorite movie. So I've seen it on at the house a lot. Uh, The Shining, I've seen a couple of times. You and I, of course, recorded a podcast about that for uh, one of my English classes. Yeah, we could drop that in the bonus feed, I guess, over oh, on the yeah. Patreon page if you had That's a mind to. a great idea. We should do that. We absolutely should. <laughs> it was really the prototype of this show. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other one I know the best is Clockwork Orange, which I had to study in two different film classes. So that one I've seen <laughs> and written about at length. And presumably you're a huge fan of, of all that it has to say about the world. <laughs> uh, listen, the guy has style. Let's not pretend. But... I don't know about the substance there. Yeah, that one in particular, I think, is a challenge. Though it is, you know, in accordance with the rest of his filmography, because Mm -hmm. he would almost entirely adapt existing work. He wasn't interested so much in telling his own stories. He was interested in taking an established piece of work and weaving his magic through that adaptive process. And that's what gets us, you know... This, this enduring body of work, it is hard, even for someone like me. I'm not particularly a fan of Kubrick's work, and yet it's hard to take away his position no, as one of the most significant filmmakers it, of the definitely. 20th century. Because if nothing else, the man was influential as hell. Like oh, the yes. man has led more people to film school than maybe anyone but Scorsese. I think it's a, mm. a remarkable impact that he had on the industry, despite... Well, relatively contributing so little. This is what, a quarter, less than a quarter of Scorsese's filmography? Yeah, that's a point. What about you? Do you have any of his films that you yeah. like and go back to? Like, I, mean, I could see you being a 2001 guy. I do think that 2001 is genius. But even when I was you know, 12 years old and I watched that film for the first time, I was already such a fan of Arthur C. Clarke that I preferred the book. I preferred ah, that mm. mode of, of science fiction. And Though the end of that film is so visually impressive, I also find it narratively incoherent, which I think is a recurring problem in yeah, Kubrick's work. Definitely. He is just more of a filmmaker than a storyteller. He doesn't seem to care about that, though, in the same way that Lynch doesn't, to bring it back. See, I don't think he cares about it in a different way than Lynch doesn't. I think that he and Lynch find themselves in the same place, but from different perspectives. Yeah. I think that he is just much less willing to be, I don't know, deliberately ambiguous and more willing to be weirdly veiled and mysterious Hmm. it feels as though 
Kubrick is in a contest of wills with his audience, much more than David Lynch is, for example. I think yeah. that Lynch is happy for you to access his art or not. He's happy yeah. for it to work for you <laughs> or not. And I think that Kubrick is much more dictatorial. Like, I think part of his reputation as a tyrant on set, which, as I've said before, is largely unearned, particularly mm. by this point in his career. But much of his reputation as a tyrant on set, I think, comes from how didactic his editing process is. He was heavily mm. invested in post-production, even back before, you know, post-production was what it is today. And his films seem to have such a powerful purpose behind them that their narrative ambiguity just really does create space for speculation. It really mm. does. Just, it's very difficult to go into any of his films and be completely sure exactly what happened, particularly when it comes to the motivation of characters. He seems very disconnected from the human beings who ostensibly occupy the heart of his films. He's yeah. not a narrativist. He's a filmmaker. Hmm. And I think that those disciplines oftentimes overlap, but in this case, don't so much. The other thing which defines the shape of Kubrick's career is his preoccupation with certain ideas to which he keeps returning. He will have pot boiler projects that he just runs with for years and years and years and goes off and makes another film and then comes back to it and then goes off and makes another film and then comes back to it. His Napoleon film, for example, he wanted to make a biography of Napoleon and never did. That is why Ridley Scott made his biography of Napoleon <laughs> because he wanted to one-up Kubrick, which... I think tells you everything you need to know about Ridley Scott, honestly. <laughs> he starts working on an adaptation of Brian Aldiss's short story, Super Toys Last All Summer Long, in the early 1970s. And he keeps coming back to this project every couple of years, waiting for the technology to develop to the point that he can make this story about a little robot boy. The technology isn't quite there yet. He shelves it, does something else, comes back to it. The technology still isn't there yet. By the middle of the 1990s, when the film really goes into pre-production, he tries to hand the project off to Steven Spielberg with the idea that this movie, which was then called AI, yeah. would be closer to Spielberg's artistic sensibilities. Spielberg refuses. He says, no, it's your project. You should absolutely make this. The technology's still not there yet, but it will be very soon. Then, of course, Kubrick's already in production for Eyes Wide Shut. He mm -hmm. dies shortly after completing this film. And the Kubrick estate goes to Spielberg and says, would you please take this film mm. and finish it? And he does. And yeah, that's... AI, artificial intelligence, which... I really liked. I haven't seen it in a long time, but when I saw it in theaters, I loved it. And I think I even like bought it on DVD or whatever. Yeah. But I think it's such an interesting fusion of Kubrick's big ideas. Mm -hmm. so obviously, the, all this short story, too. But Kubrick's big ideas with Spielberg's heart yes. and humanity. Humanity and characters yeah. that you can actually empathize with. Yes. I mean, it tells you something that repeatedly throughout the development of this project, which he's you know working on on and off for 30 years, every now and then he'll go back to it and think, you know, maybe I should just take this idea that I have and make Pinocchio instead. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we don't have a Kubrick Pinocchio. Yeah. <laughs> I would kind of like it if people stopped making versions of Pinocchio, honestly. But here we are. Every filmmaker, <laughs> for some reason, wants to make that film. <laughs> so similarly to Super Toys Last All Summer Long, Kubrick buys the rights for the 1926 Arthur Schnitzler novel Traum Novelle Dream Story in 1968. Dream Story. Yes. Mm. After apparently mm. being given the book a decade earlier by Kirk Douglas on the set of Paths of Glory. The novella is set in Vienna at the end of the 19th century and is focused on the experience of a Jewish doctor, Friedelin. Kubrick keeps returning to the idea of adapting this novella. He thinks about casting Woody Allen in the late 1970s. He thinks about casting Steve Martin in the early 1980s. Weird. But there's just never space for him to get this production rolling 
until like 1994. And the shape of the novella is very much the shape of the film. It's an interesting overlaying of one text on top of another because while the events depicted are largely the same, if you can, you know, transplant late 19th century Vienna for late 20th century New York City, mm -hmm. except not really New York City, then yeah, the, the stories unfold in very similar ways. But there are some real inflections that are put on this text by Kubrick, which I guess we'll get into as we start moving through the plot of the piece. So Kubrick gets the go-ahead from Warner Brothers in the early 1990s, but they have one condition. You have to cast a star. He didn't cast anyone of note and name in Full Metal Jacket. And Warner Brothers believes that that cost that film a lot of money at the mm -hmm. box office, which I don't know. I'm not sure that's a defensible yeah, position, yeah. really. But they keep looking back and saying, you haven't cast a major star in one of your films since Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And that was in 1980. And yes, but that was one film ago. Yeah. I'm not sure that it's as much the perceived box office failure of Full Metal Jacket as it is Warner Brothers' insecurity about a weirdly horny sex film. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Kubrick originally wants Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger, which is wild to consider. It is, but I can see it. Yes, though it's a more squalid film. Yes. It's a nastier, dirtier, like much early 90s or basic yes. instinct kind of movie. Which... I'm Which, not sure I don't want It's from this. certainly a take. Right? It's certainly a thing you could do. He then wants uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore, despite Bruce Willis and Demi Moore being Worse. just a little older. Mm -hmm. And yeah, not sexy. <laughs> really. really? Power, I, I like both of those actors just fine, but really powerfully not sexy. So instead he goes to the obviously sexy choice of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But there is, I think, something really important in that, which is that from the jump he is considering partners he is considering people right. who are in a relationship yeah. or are married in real life and i, I think why. that that is a bad idea because i think that from the jump tom cruise is great casting for bill like he is obvious casting for bill we are doing throughout this film exactly what we always want you to do with tom cruise which is to put him on the back foot make him feel low status make mm -hmm. him feel like he's got something to prove and i think that that works for him i'm not sure aside from cruise that we would ordinarily cast kidman in this role what do you think I would agree with you. She is a woman that reads so smart and competent and autonomous that putting her in this shell of a wife who can't communicate, who seems to have no real desire or uh, ability to lead the plot on her own, particularly the scene where she gets high and starts arguing with Bill, falls completely flat for me and reads as it's not even flat. It's like ridiculous. It reads as ridiculous. Yeah. And I have, I have trouble trying to picture somebody else in that role. But it's clear that there's a casting issue happening. I think so. I think so. And I think that that is in part why I am maybe a little defensive of Kidman's work in this film is because I can see her striving to get to the heart of something for which she is perhaps not perfectly suited. Yeah. Maybe you would go to someone who is just... I don't know. You could think of a uh, not quite contemporaneous, but of course, when you think of Kidman, you think of Naomi Watts. And I can picture Naomi Watts doing this I role. I can. Yeah. And being frazzled in a way that Kidman does not communicate yes. really ever on screen. I can't think of her being frazzled. No. And when she does try to do it, it always reads as strange. Yeah. Yeah. It, it never quite works. So I, I do like, yeah, Naomi Watts is a great pull for this one. She has something that's much more tragic and wounded and vulnerable than yeah, I think I ever get yeah. from Kidman. And of course, we're thinking about Naomi Watts probably because, yes, David Kidman, Lynch, of yeah. course, but also Mulholland Drive, mm -hmm. which is, or it could be 
considered a sister piece to this film. I think I that they inhabit can... very similar spaces. I, I agree with you there. Yeah, I like to think of them side by side. I think that there's an interesting distinction between, you know, as we draw comparison between like East Coast Noir and West Coast Noir. Ooh. I think that we could look at this as a kind of yeah. East Coast Dream Noir and West Coast Dream Noir. I know which one I prefer. I know which one I prefer <laughs> in both cases. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The other thing that we should probably acknowledge as we're talking about the production of this film is the place that it occupies in Cruz's personal timeline, though it's not maybe what you might think, because the myth of Tom Cruise has kind of changed our understanding of Eyes Wide Shut. The story, as it's commonly understood now, is that he and Kidman go off to England, they shoot this film for two years, and it shatters their marriage, and they immediately divorce, and he immediately slips into his decade-long decline. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. They complete this film in 1998, and they don't divorce until the spring of 2001. Each of them makes two more films between now and then. Oh, wow. And furthermore, it seems as though, by Kidman's account most of all, as though their time together on this set was the happiest of their entire marriage. Mm. They're there for two years. They've never spent this amount of time together without one of them jetting off to go and make an entirely different film. They have their kids with them on set. It's very familial it's very domestic mm-hmm. it's very ordinary probably not on set but yeah not on set sure but you know around yes. absolutely <laughs> their kids in real life vanish whenever necessary just like right. the kid in the film does nice right amazing vanishing children the greatest invention of the 90s really but they they just have this very cozy and and yeah familial environment mm. kidman talked years after all of this went down about you know making spaghetti and having Stan come over after a day's worth of shooting and just oh. it was a very low pressure environment because at this That's point so Cooper can just take all the time that he yeah. wants and does. Hmm. He's also very respectful toward Kidman personally. He for example told her very early in the process that when she was going to be nude on screen, when she was mm-hmm. going to be in a state of undress on screen, he would privately show her all of the dailies that they would take during that shoot. And then she would be allowed to trash any that she didn't like. Wow, Just that's nice. Sight unseen, no contest, no mm-hmm. argument. She could take any footage of her in a state of undress that she didn't like, and he would destroy it, physically destroy it right there in front of her. That's nice. He does take that a step further, though. And I think that this is perhaps where we can see some kind of Machiavellian aspect mm. to his working style, because when he shoots the scenes with Nicole Kidman and the extremely handsome Gary Goba, who is the... Uh, the fantasy the naval, naval officer, officer. Yes. sure, sure. <laughs> who is, if you guys just go look him up, he is sarcastically good looking. He is just, <laughs> if, if you ordered one very good looking man. That and is, it's specifically not Tom Cruise type too. So that's nice. Not looking entirely like Tom Cruise. Yes. But I mean, there's a kind of a resemblance when mm. he's in his uniform. When he's in his uniform, he doesn't not look like Tom Cruise in Top Gun, right? Uh, I mean... I mean, the idea of a naval uniform is that you make everyone look the same. Yeah, more like Val Kilmer, I would say. But yeah, I hear you. (laughs) Which would also, I'm sure, tweak Tom Cruise, except Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise never saw him. Kubrick deliberately did not introduce the two actors. He kept them apart. And when they shot that sex scene that is intercut through the film as Bill's fantasy of what her fantasy would really have been like, dreams within dreams, layers Mm -hmm, within layers. mm -hmm. When they shot that sequence, which lasted for three days, Kubrick arranged it so that Cruz would, A, not be allowed anywhere near the set and arranged most of it to take place when Cruz was actually absent from the set entirely. So he didn't see any of that footage before the film was finished. To what purpose? To create a distance in real life between Cruz and his wife. Huh. Okay. 
it's loaded, right? It's, it is. It's, it's a psychologically challenging thing to do to your actors. To give him in real life the experience of not knowing about this very sexy time that I mean, and of course, not really sexy. We mustn't fall not, into the though. trap That's of actually believing it's that really shooting not. sexy to yeah. sexy. Yeah, right. But you know, this this connection, this intimacy, mm. right? Even if you preclude the idea that shooting sex is sexy, we can acknowledge that it's very intimate. That Certainly. these two actors yeah. were very close together, sure, and that this is an experience that she had that is completely her own, that he was not a part of, hmm. explicitly. And I find that it's, it's interesting. I find least. it interesting. Yeah. I don't find yeah. it cool. I don't find it. Good. I don't find it cool or good. I but... don't think it was particularly effective either. My whole thing with that sequence is that for him imagining his wife with this other man, she doesn't seem to be having a very good time. But I think that that is completely intentional. I think that Bill imagining his wife having sex would not include her having a good time. Okay. This I'm... is why I think it's so important that it's his fantasy of her fantasy that we never see this event from her perspective. We see nothing from her perspective. Huh. I'm going okay. to be making an argument as we move through this, I think, that yeah. part of what her story is about, that really all of what her story is about, is the realization that her husband does not see her, that her husband does not know her. And that her giving voice to her secrets, even when perhaps she ought not to give voice to her secrets, sure. to her fantasy, to her dreams specifically, that she is doing this because she wants to be known. She is opening herself up with the hope that he will apprehend her fully. Mm. And we can talk about whether or not that happens at the end of the film. Spoiler, it doesn't. I don't think that it happens <laughs> at the end of the film. Yeah. But maybe there's an interpretation <laughs> that we can find that will say maybe that it Maybe it might. Maybe there's hope that it, that it will. Yeah. Filming eventually ends in June of 1998, and Kubrick begins his post-production phase, which is intense. He finally shows Warner Brothers a cut of the film on March the 1st, 1999, and then six days later, he dies. Wow. The studio then takes over completion of the project, and this is incredibly controversial, particularly mm. if you are a dyed-in-the-wool Kubrick fan. You will sure. lament the fact that the studio took over and changed the director's vision. The degree to which they altered his vision is unclear. Yeah. It seems as though it's very little bordering on none at all. They absolutely feel like somebody really went in there and edited it hard, I have to say. If you were going to do that, particularly if you were the studio and you were yeah. trying to make this more commercial, you would have done more, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. But they're working with his widow. They're working with his estate, with his representatives, too, to try mm -hmm. and be considerate. They're working That's with great. Cruz. They're working with Kidman because they also have a certain amount of input on, on particularly nudity releases, right? They get Naturally. final cut yeah. on, on any scenes that involve them being naked. That said, Kubrick was an obsessive editor, and the fact that this film wasn't going to come out for another three months means that he would have spent another three months editing it. So it probably would have been tighter, if not fundamentally yeah. different. Long after the fact, some people close to the production did say that Kubrick was specifically unhappy with the production cut, which is, you know, 99% of the finished movie. But Jan Harlan, the executive producer and Kubrick's brother-in-law, and Todd Field both say that Kubrick loved the movie and was proud of it, even in its almost finished hmm. state. Okay. One big change was made after the fact, and it's very difficult to get a hold of now because of the way that films are distributed. Under his contract with Warner, he had to deliver an R-rated cut that they could show in theaters because if he only delivered the NC-17 cut that he wanted to make, they would have lost so much money right. because yeah. you just can't get an audience for an NC-17 cut in movie theaters. This cut, the R-rated cut, 
was accomplished after the fact by the studio going in and superimposing digital composites over the looter sex acts through the orgy scene. Primarily just black-robed figures who stand completely stock still in front of the action so that you can't see what is happening. Occasionally naked women standing, you know, shot from behind, standing in front of the action because... Mm Naked women shot from behind are R-rated, actual sex acts, NC-17 rated. This is just the world in which we live. It's weird. You can find it online if you go and look on YouTube. But all of the released versions now, I believe, are the NC-17 cut. So you get to see the Hmm. unexpurgated action and maybe wish that you hadn't. (laughs) (laughs) What's strange is that watching the movie did not feel particularly NC-17 to me. Like, there were a lot of sex acts, I suppose. But I feel in my gut that I have seen more explicit sex than that. But I think it's just because the sex has been hotter. It's literally... And this is not hot sex. Yeah, the MPAA doesn't care about hotness. The MPAA yeah. cares about what you are depicting and for how long and between how many people. And there is a lot of sex in this film that is not cloaked through edit or cinematography in the way that mm. we normally cloak sex Yeah, scenes. yeah, that's true. Okay, fair enough. Apparently, there were major cuts made, and this is while Kubrick was still alive, there were major cuts made to the fantasy sex scene with uh, Alice and the naval officer because he allegedly said when they began shooting it that he wanted it to be almost pornographic. He wanted it to be extremely explicit. And it's not, thankfully. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's one other posthumous change to this film. The voice of the masked woman at the orgy had to be dubbed because the actress in that scene, Abigail Good, was English and could not do a convincing American (laughs) accent. So realizing that it had to be changed, the studio talks with the estate, they talk with Cruz, they talk with Kidman, and Cruz and Kidman recommend a young up-and-coming actor that they know in L.A., Kate Blanchett. That's so wild to me. Who dubs all of that dialogue and is uncredited and did not talk about it publicly until 2018. And now that you know it's her, you can absolutely sure. hear it. Yeah. But not knowing that it was her, it, yeah, it's a really great performance. Okay, that's yeah. really cool. So let's run through our cast. A very small cast in yeah. this film, really. We should talk, of course, about Nicole Kidman, who we've talked about previously in Days of Thunder and Far and Away. And this is going to be our last opportunity to talk about her in the context of Tom Cruise's filmography. Though I'm sure she'll come up in casual conversation sure. in films a couple of weeks from now. After Far and Away, she has appeared in the Aaron Sorkin scripted Malice in 1993, mm. opposite Alec Baldwin and Bill Pullman. The very sentimental My Life with Michael Keaton in 1993. Have you ever seen My Life? No. I watched My Life in maybe 1995 or six when I was going through a Keaton phase and wanted to like watch everything that he uh-huh. had done. And I remember that film being incredibly heavy handed and mm, yeah, sentimental. Sure. So not my favorite. She plays famously Dr. Chase Meridian in Batman Forever, yes. which is the Val Kilmer, Tommy right. Lee Jones, I remember her Jim Carrey. I think she's kind of good in that film. I think that she gets, in that film as in this film, I think you can argue that she is hitting a tone that the film wants and that no one else is capable of getting to. That's interesting. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an interesting and kind of yeah influential and emblematic uh, early role for her. She's also that same year the lead in Gus Van Sant's To Die For, where she seduces high schooler Joaquin Phoenix and convinces him to murder her husband, Matt Dillon, so that she can continue her career in local television. That's wild. Okay. Eventually getting Joaquin Phoenix and his buddy sent to prison for, I think, like drug possession or something. And then the whole story is unraveled and it's it's a noir tragedy where the villain, of course, suffers the most at the end. Weird film. From there, she takes the lead in Jane Campion's Portrait of a Lady in 1996 and is 
praised, liked more than that film is, certainly. Mm. She appears with George Clooney in the action thriller The Peacemaker in 1997, and that yeah. doesn't totally work no, either. No, I only remember trailers for that. And then she's in Practical Magic in 1998. Ah, there with it is. Sandra That's Bullock and Diane Wiest yeah. and Stucker Channing, of course, is so good in that film. Mm-hmm. Is Practical Magic your vision of Kidman at this point in the late 90s? Did you already have a sense of Probably, her from that film? Probably, yeah. Yeah, know her from that and in Batman. That's how I think of her. I mean, at that at that good stage. Role. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say they're her best, you know, post far and away mm-hmm. roles for sure. She also appears in the Sam Mendes production of David Hare's play The Blue Room in London in 1998, mm. which is why she and Cruz meet Kubrick in the first place. Not least of all, because The Blue Room is also an adaptation of the work of Arthur Schnitzler, just like Eyes wow. Wide Shut. Isn't that weird? That is weird. She is, for the first time, partially nude on stage, mm. which means that this is a phenomenon in the very salacious British press sure, of the time. Of course. And the perception of the production is that it and she are very sexy. And that's not hurt mm. by the other actor in this intimate little two-hander. There is no way that you could guess which actor appeared naked on stage with Nicole Kidman in 1998 in London to huge acclaim and celebration. I can't wait for you to tell me. Ian Glenn, Jorah Mormont <gasps> I love himself. Ian Glenn. Okay. <laughs> that might not be a name that resonates hugely with the audience at home, That's but it's okay. certainly a name that resonates hugely him. with you. It does. Yeah. Tell me Excellent. about your love of Ian Glenn. I, I just love him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> great voice. Great energy. I love Jorah Mormont. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I remember a Christmas during the pandemic when during a late and grim night, you and I went looking on YouTube for Scottish television New Year's Eve celebrations of my youth. Whoa. Do you remember okay. finding a lot of like very chintzy Scottish local television? Yes, but BBC I think that Scotland was productions? Burns Night is I think what that was. It could have been Burns Night during yeah. the pandemic too. Yeah. Um, I, I just yeah. remember it being the pandemic and yep. let's face it, all of that is a blur. And finding Ian Glenn reciting, yeah, Burns poetry, certainly. Yes. Yeah, I think job. that was Burns Night. That He's was lovely. Great. He's great. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be our last chance to talk about Nicole Kidman as an actor. So we should note that she will go on from here to be nominated four times for Best Actress at the Oscars for Moulin Rouge in 2002, for The Hours in 2003, mm-hmm. which she wins, which must have really stung for Tom Cruise, <laughs> Rabbit Hole in 2011, and Being the Ricardos in 2022. She'll appear in Cold Mountain and The Stepford Wives and Bewitched, one of the most unhinged and ill-conceived films of all time. (laughs) That film is bizarre. She will famously go on to play Grace of Monaco to little success, and she'll Mm. famously go on to be the villain in Paddington to huge success. She'll appear in an adaptation of Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, which nobody liked, and never forget, never forget, she's also Jason Momoa's mom in not one but two (laughs) Aquaman films. That's right. It's <laughs> a good paycheck. It's, it's a paycheck. Yeah. It's a, it's a paycheck for it. sure. As I said, her experience on this film is extremely positive. It's two years with her family and seems to have been a very happy time for her. But well, that's good. Unfortunately, things are going to get a little harder for her in the very near future and then much, much better in the extended <laughs> future. We should mention uh, Sidney Pollock, who plays Ziegler in this, of course. Uh, We talked about him previously because he directed The Firm. Through the 90s, he has phone relationships with Kubrick because Kubrick is isolated in London and doesn't get the gossip of Hollywood, but kind of needs to know what is happening. Mm -hmm. So he and Pollock would apparently have like eight hour phone conversations just talking about all the minutiae of the business from time to time. He's also kept up with Cruz, who respects Pollock so much after working with him on the firm that for years after he would go back to him and ask for career advice and for Mm. guidance, what projects he should take next. 
Harvey Keitel was originally tapped to play that role, to play the Ziegler ah, role, okay. but dropped out slash was fired, depending who you talk to. Mm. Uh, it is said that he quit after doing like 80 takes of walking through a door or whatever like, yeah. the exaggerated <laughs> Kubrick version of that is. Right. Some people say that it was simply a scheduling conflict that sure. meant that he, you know, had to leave. And some people say that he did not fit in the mode, in, in this very quiet, domestic, intimate kind of production set that mm -hmm. they, had, they had going there. Jennifer Jason Lee was also hired for the film, but had to drop out because of a contract she had signed for David Cronenberg's Existence. And it's maybe hard to determine which of these films is less sexy it's certainly easy to determine which of these films is trying harder, but I can't imagine you're a David Cronenberg fan. No. No. Did you ever see The Fly? <laughs> Once. Yeah that's, yeah. that's probably enough. Yeah. The other person we should talk about, of course, is the aforementioned Todd Field, who plays Nick Nightingale, which is, by the way, oh, an yeah. all-time strong character name. Nick Great. Nightingale, extremely good. Yeah. Todd Field is born in 1964 and had already made a pretty successful career as an actor before being cast in Eyes Wide Shut and would go on from this the same year, really, to appear in one of my favorite TV shows of all time. He is Rick's uh, architectural partner in the firm that they run That's in Once right. and Again. Yeah. yeah. Right. He's awful in that show. He, he plays <laughs> a villainous, terrible person, but... Yeah, he's still pretty great. But his time on Kubrick's set really inspires him to move into directing. He directs his debut film, In the Bedroom, in 2001, which is nominated for five Academy Awards. Yes. It's followed by Little Children in 2006, nominated for three Academy Awards. And, of course, Tar in 2022, uh, nominated for six Academy oh, Awards. Oh, I didn't realize I still have to see Tar. I kind of wish that he would act a little more as well. I kind of wish yeah. he would take the, the, the Pollock route, right? Direct mm -hmm. by all means and then both. just occasionally act in things. I yeah. Think. Yeah. He's extremely good in this. I really like yeah, what we do with great. Nick. Yeah. The film opens, weirdly, July 16th, 1999. That is so bizarre. Isn't this it? is definitely, definitely a Thanksgiving release. It's so weirdly Christmassy. It's so Christmassy. It's so I mean, set at Christmas. Like, it's not a Christmas movie, obviously, but it's so set at Christmas. I How strange wonder to open in July. If there is a way that you could read this as a Christmas movie. I wonder if you could read this as a Christmas movie in the same mode as A Christmas Carol. I wonder if you could read this as, you know, a supernaturally inflected morality tale that is supposed to assert conservative normalcy on these people <laughs> who are daring to think about having sex with other people. Hmm. I'm going to be that guy writing an awful Reddit post, Don't aren't do I? It. I'm going to be that it. guy. <laughs> It opens alongside the very silly Bill Pullman giant crocodile movie, Lake Placid. Oh, yeah. Sure I do. Lake Placid was cool. The Omar Epps, Tay Diggs coming of age story, The Wood. The B tier, C tier, maybe Muppets in Space. Oh. Maybe woof. my least favorite Muppets That's, movie, yeah, I have to say. Yeah. And also released this same week, albeit much more quietly, is the film that would change the face of modern horror. This week is the release of The Blair Witch Project. Whoa, Isn't yeah. Isn't that wild? Uh-huh. Strange week of the movies. Eyes Wide Shut wins the week. It wins number one at the box office and is the sixth Tom Cruise movie in a row to win its opening weekend. That's cool. uh, Jerry Maguire, Mission Impossible, Interview with the Vampire, The Firm, and A Few Good Men because Far and Away was beaten at the box office its opening weekend by David Fincher's Alien 3. <laughs> Weird, but okay. Neither yeah. film really endured, I think. No. Neither film really left much of a footprint on the, the cultural consciousness. Also in the top 10 the week that this film opens, it's week two of American Pie. It's week three of mm. Wild Wild West. 
West and of the <laughs> South Park movie, if you remember that sure. one. Week five of Tarzan. Week six, dizzyingly, of the first Austin Powers movie. What a dark time for film. And week nine, speaking of a dark time for film, Uh week nine of the seventh best mainline Star Wars movie, I will be taking no questions (laughs) at this time, episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yep. Eyes Wide Shut opens to $22 million, which beats expectations and goes Mm. on to a domestic total of $56 million, a worldwide total of $162 million, which is the proof, if proof were needed, that this film is better regarded outside of the U.S. than it is in the U.S. The critical response is generally positive, but when it was more negative, it was negative with a kind of befuddled confusion. It was negative with a kind of, I don't know why this is bad, but I think it is bad. (laughs) Equally, the people who said it was good also didn't know why. And there is, whether you respond positively to this film or negatively to this film, there is a real question mark hanging over the sexiness. Is this film supposed to be sexy? Some people thought that it wasn't, but that it is sexy. Some people thought that it was intended to be and wasn't. And, you know, you can mix and match that matrix however you like. Scorsese writes in an introduction to a book on Kubrick just a couple of years later, quote, When Eyes Wide Shut came out a few months after Stanley Kubrick's death in 1999, it was severely misunderstood, which came as no surprise. If you go back and you look at the contemporary reactions to any Kubrick picture, except the earliest ones, you'll see that all of his films were initially misunderstood. Then, after five or ten years, comes the realization that 2001 or Barry Lyndon or The Shining was like nothing else before or since. And I like that as an Mm. encapsulation of Stanley Kubrick's career because I think it is objectively correct. Yeah. Whether you like him, whether you dislike him, whether you find meaning in his films or you find artifice within his films, there's no one like him. None Mm. of these films could be made by any other director. There is no confusion there. Yeah. Ironically, perhaps, Eyes Wide Shut is the one that is closest to the vision of other directors in that it's not dissimilar to what David Lynch is doing Mm. or to what some of these... But you still get so much of that, like, classic Stanley Kubrick, obviously this is him, all the tracking shots especially. Like, it feels very Kubrickian. He's got a way with a tracking shot, that's for sure. I think cinematically this is a really beautiful film the cinematographer on this film had never worked as a cinematographer before he had been a gaffer with Kubrick on previous this is the thing about Kubrick is that Kubrick ran a very tight and small and intimate set Mm -hmm. there's a story Tom Cruise toward the end of the shoot is in pre-production for Magnolia which we will talk about on the next episode of The Last Star in Hollywood and there's a story about Paul Thomas Anderson coming to the set of Eyes Wide Shut and being bewildered that it was so small and intimate. Five or six people in the entire crew for a day's shoot. Wow. And Kubrick kind of looks up at him from his directorial chair and says, well, how many people do you have on your set? And Anderson flees the set. Like, he does not want to answer that question because he is embarrassed and ashamed. It's so many. There are so many people on sets, and so many of them spend a lot of time standing around. Yeah. Interestingly, in the years since, Anderson has slimmed down his Mm -hmm. own production team and now has as few people on set as he can get away with, which... I I think it speaks to a certain influence there. Mm -hmm. So that's all of the production story for this film. Where are you now in our discussion? Are you warmer than where we started? Cooler than where we started? Have you been unchanged by this logistical accounting? Interested, I suppose. I don't know that I'm warmer necessarily. Uh, I'm still confused by it. I still think that it is bad, but I don't quite know why it is bad, other than the very clear there are no characters in this film. But other than that, It's so obviously beautiful. It's intriguing, of course. I think mostly for me, it's just too long, too slow, 
has maybe the worst soundtrack I have ever heard. <laughs> I think that is right. I don't even want to talk about the soundtrack on this one because it is wow. so poor and intrusive. And I get yeah. minimalism, you guys. I get minimalism. I like minimalist soundtracks. I absolutely do. But that just recurring accelerating the beat. Piano thing. Yes. Yeah. This is not, you know, Jaws. This is <laughs> this requires something a little more intentional and mm. a, a little less modern perhaps this doesn't quite feel as though it's entirely oh, I know if modern is what i got i got like a six-year-old practicing classical music <laughs> you know what i'm saying oh my god is it supposed to be helena have you just unlocked a whole <laughs> new interpretive lens through which we might view this film does she have a piano anywhere in her bedroom she doesn't play with a piano in the sequence at the end in the toy store that i recall though she does conspicuously play with the baby carriage did you notice that <laughs> i did it's notice all that. about reproduction really, well that is the right only way that you can have sex that is good and pure is to make a baby I guess before we get into it, I do want to ask you one more question. As a queer woman, how did you feel about the depiction of female nudity in this movie, which has no male nudity? Basically, yeah, no. you get a little bit of boy butt and that's it. A, a yeah. vanishingly a small, vanishing amount, like a small rounding amount. error yes. amount of boy butt and yeah. a ton of specifically and blatantly objectified female nudity, like, yeah. like consciously and diegetically yeah. objectified female nudity. How did you feel about it? I mean, I think you pretty much answered it. It was absolutely exploitative. I guess I'd want to clarify, too, a distinction between between that objectified nudity that we get during right. the orgy, for example, and the much more casual nudity that we get. You know, there's the topless woman in the doctor's office that uh, That Bill was my least examining. favorite one. That's That, to me, I was the most exploitative. the same way. At Isn't first, I was like, oh, weird? is that Mandy? And when it wasn't, I was like, fuck you, film. That would have been so much better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I mentioned earlier the way that we shoot his doctor's office as being just kind of like... Great, just just commonplace, right? Just right. every day. It is mm-hmm. not spectacularly lit like the other sets. It just feels like it's in another world. And making her topless in that scene felt exploitative. Absolutely. In a was. way that it doesn't perhaps feel exploitative in other sets. But I guess I'm really contrasting the women at the parties and Nicole Kidman's casual nudity when they are at home in, in their domestic environment. I don't mind Nicole Kidman's casual nudity as much, I think, um, or partial nudity, I think, worked even better. What could be interesting about that is, you know, kind of the cliche thing that people say, oh, my God, why are you going out for to go pay for sex when you have Nicole Kidman right there at home? Like, she's obviously just stunning. So I think we're showing something between the divorce of her feeling confident and beautiful in her body, which she clearly does, and being able to express that sexually and romantically with her husband, which she cannot. Yeah. So something there is interesting. And so I'm here for it. Uh, Similarly, Mandy's nudity is supposed to be an oh shit moment. And and she's supposed to be like quite vulnerable. And we're supposed to feel, oh my God, what is happening? And so all of that works for me too. Yeah. We're we're never situated in in a perspective where we're supposed to appreciate or enjoy it, I suppose. Right. Right. Absolutely. In the orgy sequence and at the party, it's of course exploitative, but I think that's purposeful because the cult itself is just one big upper class white male fantasy. Manifestation of power and of wealth, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I the, the thing is that ultimately I don't understand the sex cult orgy because very few people seem to be having any fun there, for one. And if you're going to be throwing a giant sex party... Shouldn't it be a little bit fun? And if it's not fun, if it's religious instead and intent, 
And this does have so much religious iconography, you know, like the the cardinal guy swinging his incense yeah. and doing the Gregorian chants. But like, but insubstantial religious iconography of the kind that you would associate exactly. with a sex cult, right? I suppose <laughs> and of course, so. before we spend three hours in the orgy, we're going to invoke Bacchus. And, <laughs> yeah, okay, we get. Well, it. everyone just stands around again, looking deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I just, I question. The point of this and why uh, Ziegler is like, well, you can see why everybody wants to hide this so much. It's like, can you? People have sex a lot, you guys. Like people have their friends over and lots of people have sex pretty frequently. Well, and that I think is the response, right? Is is that the reason that you make it so arcane, the reason that you keep it secret in particular is that it's not actually about sex, is that it is about power. It is about the exercise of power. These people can do whatever they want because they are aristocrats right because Mm. they are in a higher social order and i think that that is one of the major themes of this film is that social mobility is an illusion Mm. that that you can never actually meaningfully change who you are and where you come from okay that is much more interesting and it helps me kind of to solve the the puzzle of this sex cult because then all of these women who are so exploited at this party are in fact sex workers he said that the one girl especially was ended up being mandy the the girl from the party before so ambiguously the girl from the party before yes <laughs> okay he, I, okay i'm if, gonna if say she's not that go ahead no i hear what you yes i hear what you were saying if she's not that this does not line up and does not make sense and it's really the only plot point the movie yes. has so we the need it problem to be not is ambiguous. that Mandy from the Christmas party right. that Alice also attends, that is that Odie's in Ziegler's bathroom, and the masked girl with Kate Blanchett's voice from the orgy party are played by different actors. That's, I don't know why. Unless they're trying to just gaslight the whole thing and not let you guess it, or well, they want it to be ambiguous. Is Ziegler telling the truth? She's dead of an OD. Is she really the same girl as the girl who OD'd in the bathroom? Okay, or does okay. he just say that because, you know, he's establishing a pre-existing drug problem? Sure. Did the mm, masked mm-hmm. cult take action against this woman? Was the, her sacrifice more meaningful than Ziegler suggests? Because Ziegler says, I it's all a fake, it's all a charade. Yeah. But is it? Had it had to be her because how else would she recognize him and be like, I have to get you out of here. You don't belong here. That's a great question. Like, that is a great question. Although she was so drugged up, why would she recognize him? This is otherwise? a deliberate yeah. ambiguity in the film. Is that, yeah, because the whole thing works in a really noirish way, right? Mm-hmm. It, it works as like a traditional kind of plot that you would attach to a story of this type, except that they're played by different people. Yeah. And that's mm. a weird turn, particularly for a production that ran for two years where they could probably have gone back and reshot the earlier stuff if they needed to. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> We'll get to it. I promise. Okay. We've got so much okay. to discuss. Let's get into it. Let's meet Bill and Alice Hartford, who are, yeah, non-specifically wealthy in New York City. And but not that wealthy. Interestingly wealthy, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, They're very upper middle class. Very upper middle class. Yes. Uh, Central Park West apartment. This mm-hmm. gorgeous, absolutely beautiful apartment set is just absolutely yeah, beautiful. so, so yeah. wonderful. Clearly successful. Clearly, Yes. Upwardly mobile in the 1980s sense of that phrase, I guess. But he still has to go to work every day. But he still has so to go to work every day. you can't day. Really be wealthy if you have to go to work every day. And yeah, it doesn't. he can't order a case of 25-year-old scotch for no. his buddy just on the say-so. I mean... Show up at parties in limos. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's the distinction right there. And, and right from the jump, I think we introduce two incredibly important themes for the whole movie. We get Bill wondering where his wallet is, asking Alice if she has seen his wallet. That wallet is going to be so important to the rest of this, oh, yeah. this movie. 
because it's the source of his seemingly endless amount of cash. I mm-hmm. don't. What, he does seem to have fifteen hundred dollars or something just in his wallet <laughs> just casually in his wallet. through the, yes. the the one big night that he spends. And he's out very of the important. Town. I am a doctor. You can tell me anything. Card, exactly. which he flashes like right? an FBI badge throughout the whole movie. So it's such a strange. It's beat. money and it's authority, and it's literally the first thing he says. Do you mm-hmm. know where my wallet is? Like I need it. It is a part of my identity. It defines in large part who I am. Mm-hmm. He then mm-hmm. goes into the bathroom where she is sitting on the toilet and she says, how do I look? And he is looking in the mirror at yep. himself and says, perfect. Yes. He does not see her. Well, and she even says, you didn't even look at me. Yeah. yeah. She does look perfect for what it's worth. Has Nicole Kidman ever looked better than this film? I think maybe never. I think it's the combination of like, we're not quite at her huge natural hair. Right? She's obviously had some work done through the 90s to to tame it and restrain it. But yeah, still big curly hair and those little glasses. The it's little a glasses good are very good. Yeah. Yep. The interesting thing about opening in this way is like this is the only point of something like intimacy that we see from them. But it's kind of the grossest part of intimacy, right? Like, I really appreciate that, you know, we're at seven years together. We close the door when we go to the bathroom. You know, like, I'll undress in front of you all day long. And it's not that I'm shy. It's just, you know. A little bit of mystery. Yeah, to just, preserve just, a mystique. Just a sure, bit. absolutely. Just a little. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think there's something to that. There is something about the way in which they inhabit each other's space, mm-hmm. but it is uncomfortable. Right. And then the ways in which they are obviously much more comfortable. Like, really, we will visualize this through the rest of the movie with the bed. The bed will represent their intimacy or lack of intimacy mm-hmm. together, right? The intrusion of the mask into the bed at the very end of the sure. film is yes. so important. Like, so, so visually significant and visually striking, but also thematically important. But you're absolutely right. It's this forced compatibility of these two people who are yeah. not, they're coexisting in the same space, but they're not sharing the same space. It's right? almost like a locker room. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should mention too, that this is in fact not where we start the film because we start the film with the much more provocative Nicole Kidman takes off her dress from behind and right. is fully nude mm-hmm. right before the title credits. And there is some speculation that that was not intended by Kubrick, that that was superimposed on the structure of the film mm-hmm. by the studio but i wasn't able to find like a real answer to that and sure. i'm not sure that it changes it i will say that i do not like it i do not like her no. disrobing like that before the opening credit because it's not it's neither narratively nor it's thematically not, yeah. significant it does feel just shocking it feels like marketing more than yeah. anything else yeah. right i would agree so bill and alice bid good night to their daughter who is just adorable, just a little moppet mm-hmm. in this film, and yeah. to the babysitter too, and go off to their party to nice the sequence. Ziegler's uh, mm-hmm. Christmas party. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interestingly laid out space. It's obviously yeah, it's just extremely expensive, right? We're we're moving yeah. upward into an entire other tier of being. This is mm-hmm. this is another tier of society, in which Bill feels a little ill at ease already, right? Walk me through that. How do you mean? They wonder at first why they are invited. They kind of, you know, muse to each other what the hell they are doing here because this is obviously not their place. And then when they're dancing together on the dance floor, she playfully asks him if he knows anyone here. And he looks right through her and says, not a soul, which, by the way, is absolutely true. He doesn't know anyone Mm -hmm. present including the woman he's dancing with. (laughs) But we're just really lampshading that right early in in the story there. We get the very brief sequence with uh, Bill recognizing uh, Nick Nightingale and going over and having the brief conversation while Alice wanders over to the bar. And that's it. They're apart now and they're going to be split for the remainder of the evening, Mm -hmm. basically, because he is going to wind up with these two Two models, very attentive young models who want to show him what's at the end of the rainbow. Right. The moment where they part, where he is summoned upstairs to go and help Ziegler with what will turn out to be an OD'd girl in his bathroom. Mm -hmm. What do you take of his 
behavior there where he retreats from them. Because it seems as though he is almost relieved to be leaving them, that he's not actually going to be faced with the reality of adulterous sex. Yes, which I think he probably would have chickened out of anyway, especially since she was right there. No, I think he felt that he got off the hook. Yeah. So what does he get from his relationship with Alice, particularly as it's presented to us here at the beginning of the film? Like, is he happy in his marriage? We, we know already, really, that she's not. She's not mm-hmm. seen. She's not observed. Even you're right. Even if we take the text of the film that how do I look? Oh, you look perfect. You're not even looking at me. Mm-hmm. How do we read his involvement and, and investment in his marriage at this point? I mean, safe, I suppose. Very. There's something very just kind of uh, 50s boomery <laughs> about yeah. the whole idea of marriage in this uh, film. So... He's getting the place to come home to where everyone's happy to see him and he gets hugs and then gets to leave again. So in that kind of like set down your briefcase. Safety, stability, yeah. conformity, right? There's a certain aspect of of a stable family relationship that is necessary right. to enjoy your life at this upper end of the middle class, mm-hmm. uh, the professional classes. She obviously is feeling a little more tempted to be led astray as we learn when she winds up dancing with what do you make of this guy that she winds up meeting at the bar well bill is enjoying his economic victory over nick nightingale Mm -hmm. right when he wants to go and rub in how well he is doing and how badly nick is doing (laughs) which is just a (laughs) shitty thing to do anyway we cut to uh alice at the bar with this hungarian sandor javost at the bar ridiculous how does this guy work for you he's so creepy it's again like i (laughs) just don't understand these things like if you're gonna go to a party why aren't you flirting with people and if flirting with people is bad then you should just be hanging out together and if you're not hanging out together what is anybody doing i'm just i'm just so who isn't flirting with people i'm I'm having trouble tracking your breakdown of this who who is not flirting who should be flirting they are both flirting but they are both feeling horribly guilty about it and trying to hide it from each other and i find that strange interesting yeah yeah so it's like they found themselves flirting with people by accident. Yeah. And this is where we see her arguably, I think, adopting a persona. I think that's one way of reading what happens to her here because her speech patterns change and her Mm. delivery slows right down and she's all breathy now suddenly where she wasn't. When you go back and you look at her in the apartment, she kind of talks like a normal person. Right, yeah. And here she is delivering this incredibly exaggerated response. Mm -hmm. And obviously she's drinking champagne too. Yeah. But not that much. Well, there's the moment, though, where it seems like she has almost fallen asleep in his arms while they're dancing. And she looks up and seems surprised that it's him that she's dancing with. And that is uncomfortable. Yes, but that's much later. That's after we've dealt with the girl upstairs. We're still in the early part of the evening here. And she's already, Mm -hmm. yeah, deep in that very slow, very affected delivery. Yeah, I do think she's trying to figure out what a woman who was being flirted with might say to a man who was flirting with her. Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Are you interested in this? As a read of Alice's character, particularly at this point, that that she is wanting to be more romantic, more expressive, more seen, more realized, more appreciated. Of course. That's why she stays with this guy on the dance floor for as long as she does. Naturally. Is that even though he is a little creepy, (laughs) he's definitely giving off like, do you sleep in a coffin full of dirt that you've imported from (laughs) Romania, sir? You have to tell me. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so you you buy that interpretation of her character at this point. Totally. that, That she is playing without really knowing how to play yes yeah okay bill is at this point called away to tend to mandy we get this 
somewhat shocking scene, I think, mm-hmm. right? Somewhat shocking, not least of all, because we get Victor Ziegler putting on his suspenders over his bare, hairy chest. Right. Coming to the door and absolutely normalizing. Oh, oh you know, it's one of those things. Here yeah. she is, a snowball, a, whatever they call it, the kids right. these days, coke and heroin, you know, you Ooh. know how they are. <laughs> And absolutely normalizing this with all of the like natural authority of a very, very wealthy person yes. who's hosting a party, right? Mm-hmm. He's almost daring Bill to say, and like, demonstrate to me that you're not cool right now. Demonstrate right. to me, knowing that Bill would rather die <laughs> than make yes. it clear that he does not belong in that room. Mm-hmm. And from there, we wrap up pretty quickly, I think. Bill takes care of Maddie, comes back downstairs. We get mm-hmm. the sequence where, uh, you're right, uh, Alice is almost falling asleep on the shoulder of the guy that she's dancing with, suddenly feels that she has had too much champagne. Mm. They make their excuses. They leave. And then we get the return home and the making out, at least if not outright sex, in front of the, the mirror. mirror. Where they're both looking at themselves yes. and not each other. Yeah, this is interesting, too. Are we interpreting this in a particularly symbolic way, are we interpreting this as we are looking at our other selves? We are looking at the versions of the people that we were when we had a model hanging off of each arm or a wealthy Hungarian count, probably, like mm-hmm. sweeping us around the dance floor. Are we looking at ourselves as we actually are or are we looking at ourselves as we wish we were? Like there's some there's some flexibility there, right? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think after the party, they're both feeling, you know desired and wanted but Mm -hmm. not necessarily feeling any want or desire for one another but certainly wanting certainly precious little for each other yeah Mm -hmm. that's that's Mm -hmm. true but she still looks quite sad whereas he looks pretty happy to be there yeah i I think you're completely right Mm -hmm. she is you know missing the part of her that isn't being realized that isn't being fulfilled Mm -hmm. whereas he is checking himself out in the mirror hey look at that sexy married man look at that success story right there hey what a guy like yeah, yeah, it is absolutely that conformity, I think, that you're you're recognizing there. We hurry through the next day. We have uh, the contrast of Bill's day at work and Alice's day at home with their daughter, mm-hmm. how flat and unglamorous both of their lives are, although it's right. difficult to be flat and unglamorous when and you look such... like Nicole Kidman and you're in that yeah. apartment. Like, not yeah. that bad, surely. Right. And then all at once we're back at bedtime, and I'm not completely sure why we take a whole day to let this story play out. I guess because we need it to be the following night, right? We need to be ready for for what comes Mm -hmm. next. This is the smoking pot scene. This is the getting high scene. This is the big confessional scene from Alice that Mm -hmm. once upon a time she saw a man and had dirty thoughts about him. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I'm misrepresenting that just a little bit because it's not the fantasy, right? It's not even the it's sexual not. fantasy. It's the, I would have given up everything to go with this man. Yeah. I would have burned this shit down for one <laughs> night with this dude. That that is what she's confessing. Yeah. But that's not what Bill is going to be preoccupied by, right? He's not no. going to think about his wife leaving him. He's no. going to think about his wife having sex with this other man. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the performance aspect first, I guess. Okay. It's so weird. It's so weird. And I, I, yeah, much, I don't like it. As I want to defend Nicole Kidman. I never want to hear anyone say the word titties with that inflection ever again in my what entire about life. Dicky. So bad. It's so bad. So here's my question though. Is this Alice High or is this Alice High putting on another character, trying out something else, trying a different way of being in the world, articulating herself in the world in the hope that her husband will now see her? And is there any evidence to support any interpretation of either of those things? Yeah. I mean, she's definitely very high. That's like, what we're supposed to get. Yeah. Sure. Especially with the whole, like, when she gets the giggle fits there for a bit. Like, she's definitely very high. 
Is that uh, the lowest point in the film? That, yes. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> I think it might be. It's really terrible. Uh, but who hasn't been there? You know, I know we've certainly had arguments after a third glass of wine where we're like, you know what? This is nothing. Let's go to bed. This isn't real. I don't remember what we're fighting about. You made me mad with your face. Uh, this, I yeah, know. I mean, certainly there's uh, an element of friction here. But I, I like the idea that she is at least trying to accomplish something, that this isn't sure. just picking a fight, that he's reading it as picking a fight, and really she is wanting to be understood. And if a fight is the consequence of him understanding her, mm-hmm. then that's fine. But really it's not the fight that she wants, it's the apprehension. She wants to be seen. And of course we can juxtapose that as we can so often through this film with Bill's desire for a quiet life. Right, he just wants her to wife. be quiet and go to bed. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that he's... Not saying the wrong things, but she has no interest in hearing him say, like, the right things, the trite things. Like, she wants something that's more yeah. honest, I guess. He's not saying the wrong things, but he's he's not hearing what she's really saying. Right. He's mm-hmm. hearing the superficiality of it, mm-hmm. but he's not getting the meaning. He's not understanding sure. it, really. And, and even, yeah, his ongoing misunderstanding, his ongoing conceptualization of this as a sexually torrid affair between the two is missing the goddamn point. That is not what it's about. And that's not what her sex dream will be about later either. It's not about sex. It's about her relationship with him specifically, Mm. right? I guess so, yeah. The the interesting thing is that this guy that she saw, the naval officer guy, she says just glanced at her. Yeah. So you would think following, you know, that interpretation that it was more than a glance that he, that there was a smile or there was a look or that we exchanged a moment or something that felt real, that felt like being apprehended or seen. But I, th- I think even that moment, yeah, sometimes just, you know, you lock eyes with somebody across a room and you feel suddenly vulnerable, aware of yourself in a way mm-hmm. that you didn't before. And maybe she doesn't get to feel aware of herself in that way. I, I would love to go through and do, I wouldn't love to, I would be pained to go through and do a, a careful analysis of how often Tom Cruise looks at Nicole Kidman yeah. in this film and under what circumstances and when they actually like meaningfully lock eyes because he's giving all of that like Cruise intensity here but because it's so misaligned because he's not understanding her mm-hmm. he's missing the point fundamentally yeah I'm also bothered by this sequence because we we really in 1999 we really couldn't think of a better way of motivating this confrontation than oh she gets high and she says more than she intends to like like yeah devaluing and invalidating what she has to say in this sequence by getting her high, which puts so much pressure on the performance that right. it becomes outright bad. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't hang together, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's only going to get more bewildering. Uh, Bill is called to a patient's house, Lou Nathanson, who has recently died. Oh, he yeah. He goes there. He talks with the daughter, who just cannot help herself, has to make out with him, She's has to so tell him love that him. she loves him, that she doesn't want to leave. She just wants to live in the same city as him. And oh, my gosh. And oh, my goodness. And then her fiancé shows up, who kind of looks like Tom Cruise, right? Just looks oh, like a, a handsomer sure. Tom Cruise. Well, <laughs> interestingly, he's a math professor, so he could well be a doctor as well. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a balance. He brushes his hair on the other side. It's a very similar Cruise haircut, except he parts it on the opposite side. Mm-hmm. So they kind of look like, I don't know, mirror images of each other. <laughs> okay. dun, dun, dun. This is the point at which I suspect a lot of people start to lean toward the it was all a dream interpretation of this film, which is that he gets wickedly high with his wife she tells him the story about being attracted to a naval officer that she saw once while they were on vacation and the rest of this film is his you know pot-addled dream Mm. 
and that's I mean terrible, right? That's yeah. an awful, terrible, reductive way of of looking at texts. Like, right. don't do that. It's it's because what you have just said is that the two hours that you spent watching this film did not matter at all because mm-hmm. dreams do not matter at they all, don't. right? Yeah. But I could see why you would be tempted to because we're pretty deep in Lynchtown now, right? Yeah. The dead body in the bed accompanying this entire conversation, the the grief that suddenly turns to sexual desire that turns to like a declaration of outright love, like so of, of devotion, no less, that is then immediately cut back with the arrival of the fiance. It's soap opera. It's melodrama. It's it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that might be the low point, actually, even after the giggling. Just the, I love you, I love you, you don't even know me, but I love you. Uh, which all leads up to nothing? Yeah. Yeah, we never revisit this. Except as his, you know, first step on his Odyssean journey through the night. Right. right? <laughs> because Three different women have wanted to have sex with me in 48 hours. Yes, and that number is about to go up, too, because yeah. he is going to venture out into the city, walking down the street where mm-hmm. he is casually and homophobically harassed by some frat guys. Yes, for yes. No real No reason. That reason. was unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just seems unpleasant. And is maybe, there, there is an element in the original story, the character in the original story is Jewish in Vienna and is constantly harassed throughout the original novella for being Jewish, right? It's just subjected yeah. to horrible... Uh, anti-Semitic language and mm-hmm. threats of violence against his person. Kubrick deliberately, Kubrick, who was Jewish, right. deliberately wanted to skew this instead toward, you know, waspy Upper West Siders, right? He wanted mm-hmm. to change the kind of socioeconomic location of this plot. And that does absolutely change the inflection of it because you yeah. are relocating the source of this conflict and isolation to the enfranchised power set in Manhattan Mm -hmm. as a whole. So it's an interesting thing to do, but it leaves you without that same kind of public oppression. You know, Tom Cruise is validated by his contemporary society in a way that a Jewish person, even in the same situation, would not be. Mm. Uh, So I find that interesting. But yeah, the the weird homophobic assault is feels discordant, I think. Though not as discordant as him stopping at a red light and being approached by Domino. Domino, you get it like a mask. Domino, the <laughs> prostitute. What do you make of all this? So here's where I come back to Bill Harford not being a real character. Because at the party, he's got two models on his arm. They're flirting with him in a style I can only describe as schmaltzy. Like the most kind of sexy leaning in, touch my <laughs> cheek, play with my hair uh, kind of way, which is so weird. Ooh. Which he seems to be kind of enjoying. That's so interesting. I'm now wondering if they are models as he describes them or if they are working girls who have been hired by Ziegler for oh, his Christmas party. That would make much more sense. That would certainly explain that the behavior. That would make much more sense and sure. explain the behavior. I like yeah. that. Uh, and then the woman who comes on to him and both or all three, rather, of those women, he immediately pushes away and seems quite uncomfortable by their forthrightness. This woman is so forthright without actually being flirtatious in any way. Like, she's just solicitous. Like, she's just like, hey, you want to come up to my place? It's nice and warm in there. Everybody knows what's happening here and what this transaction is. I think that's exactly it, right? It's transactive. It puts puts this entire relationship back in his area of dominance, which is financial. Yeah. You know, his way to access this sexual encounter is is through his wallet, through yeah. the thing that he loves the most in the world. And then he doesn't have to say, I'm never going to call you again. Exactly right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I get it, I get it. 
It, it yeah. is surprising, perhaps, how immediately he agrees to it, how immediately he warms to her, how yes. immediately he seems to pursue, uh, you know, as we go inside and he starts having the, the awkward conversation, I suppose we should talk about money. Like, I suppose we should talk right. about, because this is foreplay for me, let's talk about money and how I can exploit you through the application of commerce, right? Mm-hmm, this is this mm-hmm. is economics are on my side because I've got a big wallet and that's what, you know, gets me where I need to go. It's It's ugly. It's a nice performance. I like the girl that plays Domino. I think mm-hmm. she's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. What do you make? She's the girl from Hocus Pocus. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, what do you make of the phone call from Alice and him changing his mind then to to decide instead that he ought not to spend the night with Domino? Seems plausible for this character. It does, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If she is immediately present, I mean, he will lie to her, obviously. Yeah. But maybe there is, you know, still a thin veil between his desire and his pursuit of that desire. Yeah. Well, and at this point it's supposed to be motivated by the fact that he's jealous of the time that she once thought about maybe being with another man physically, I guess also romantically and forever, but yeah, every, it's, all, every time, it's all very thin. Every time we're in the cab, every time we're in a car, in fact, for the rest of the movie, we're going to right. have a flash of that fantasy scene, and it's going to seem to motivate him more. Mm-hmm. This only motivates him out of Domino's little walk-up that she has, and instead back onto the street where he winds up at the jazz bar, where he bumps into Nick, who tells mm-hmm. him immediately about yeah. the top-secret sex party that he's yeah. going to do later that evening. So, you know. Can't help but brag, especially after this there. guy just bragged to you. So. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I do kind of like that, too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nice enough interview. Interaction. And Todd Field, I think, does a does a great job. Bill has the password, and all he needs now is a costume. So what do you do when you need a costume in New York? You go to a costume rental place. How does he know exactly what costume to get? This is a great question. An mm-hmm. unanswered great question. And this is the problem with Kubrick, right? Is that each unanswered great question could just be an oversight. If this film were simpler, if this film were less ambitious, mm-hmm. if it wasn't honestly just a Kubrick film, right? right. If Todd Field had directed this film instead <laughs> and it had been identical in every way, you wouldn't even question it. You would assume, oh, maybe Nick told him what they all wear at this party that he has secretly <laughs> glimpsed. Or maybe he just speculated about it. Maybe it's just a lucky guess. Maybe this turns out to be the costume shop that supplies all of the costumes for all of the high-class sex parties in New York City. This sequence, I find befuddling. Deranged. I find it, yeah, and and everything really with Lily Sobieski is so gross. Everything with Lily Sobieski is so yeah gross. We can terrible. move through it pretty Should quickly because cut. this is just you know this is shenanigans. This yeah. is he goes. Although we get the repetition of the rainbow symbolism here as well. The girls at the party had promised him what was at the end of the rainbow, and now here we oh, are yeah. at rainbow fashions. Oh my God, is there a connection? True. Probably not. Probably so not. he goes because he knew the guy who used to own this store, and luckily, yeah. though the store has changed hands, it is still exactly the same kind of business that it used to be. He gets his cloak, his hood, his mask, his tux. And then the proceedings are interrupted by the discovery of Lily Sobieski, 15 years old when she shoots this film, in her underwear with two Asian men in a back room. I don't know what to make of this. I don't mm-hmm. know in what is probably the lynchiest moment in the entire thing when she slips out and is hiding behind Tom Cruise and yeah. then whispers to him about getting an ermine-lined cloak, which is so specific but weird and nonsensical in mm-hmm. that lynching way right that that is it because he is defending right ermine lined cloaks are symbols of of regality they're symbols of aristocracy and and maybe we are implying here that because he has stood in front of her like 
interpretively in the defense of her that maybe he should be having some kind of more glamorous. Maybe she's just trying to hustle this guy and <laughs> get him to rent a more expensive cloak from her dad's cloak supply store. It's so weird, Elizabeth. It's so weird. I don't know. And gross and exploitative and misogynistic. But that's okay. It'll get worse later. At least now her dad's mad about it. She's yeah. just a kid. I th- well, yes, and he is going to riotously slut shame her in yes. the most outlandish and, and overwritten way, in a way that makes even his censure of her at this point not feel real. Right. right? It, it doesn't feel real here. Mm-hmm. And when we learn later that ostensibly it was real and the outcome is even worse than we thought, mm-hmm. it's it's just gross. It's yeah. It's bad news. Terrible. Bill finally gets his outfit, gets his cab. He's fantasizing further about Alice. He pulls up at the Grand Estate somewhere mysterious outside of the city, gives the password, is escorted inside into, Mm -hmm. yeah, what could be the the, the meeting of the Bavarian Illuminati, right? Like this is a reference that we're making here very powerfully. It could be a legitimate magical ritual for all we know at this point in in the story. But nope, it's just an orgy. (laughs) And it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully realized i suppose shows up in a lot of film school classes for sure the discomfort i feel at the masked figures kissing is really weird (laughs) it's unsettling it is unsettling and to me it's also stupid again like if you're gonna have a sex party you need your mouth it's just a thing i think But no, I think that's I think that's a super fair point. Right. Yeah. Later on, we will see people apparently performing oral sex on each other while With still masks wearing masks. On. Right. Which tells me that it is not about the sex. It tells me right. that it is about the performance of the sex. Yes. Not about the actual sexual pleasure itself. That it is less of an orgy than it is what? A realization of, of the power to economically dominate others? That it's that it that it's theatrical in that way? Certainly very theatrical, yes. That it is to There's some extent a charade? That is just a show and a charade, yeah. yes, absolutely. You hadn't seen this film before, is that right? But you knew what was coming right. because of film school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically not. Yeah, I'd yeah. seen some pieces of it. I'd certainly never seen the full two hours, 40 minutes, but okay. yeah. Is it shocking? I mean, this is, I think, more sex than we're accustomed to. I guess what we do first is we have the young woman approach, uh, mm-hmm. we have the masked woman approach Bill and say, you don't belong here. You should get out of here. This is dangerous right. for you. If we're reading that as Mandy, we have to, I guess, what? We have to backfill how she recognizes him, how she knows that he doesn't belong here, yeah. how she recognizes him now that he is masked. We have to do a fair amount of legwork to like yeah. justify how anything happens And I don't here. think that you can. Like the, You really just have to treat the whole film like a fever dream. Yes, I mean, perhaps, although, you know, certainly the, the dismount at the end of the film suggests that it was real. And I think mm-hmm. it's more interesting if it is real. I think it's more interesting if it is both real and impossible to understand. That it is mm-hmm. both real okay. and a thing that Bill Harford, you know, that Dr. Bill can just never really reach. This is this is to me the, the distinction of social class here. Right. That he cannot get here because he does not belong here. He wasn't born into it. He doesn't have this money. He doesn't have this power. And it doesn't matter if he has the password. It doesn't matter if he has the right outfit because there are things endemic yes. to him which preclude his ascension into this. And which he cannot rank. hide exactly, under right? cloak or mask. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's interesting. That That is how I read it. And I think that gives us... Did you ever watch Parasite? No, I didn't. That's okay. But there was one sequence in particular where basically they talk about the way the poor smell. Oh, and sure. And it's very interesting. And yeah. it reminds me of, of what you're talking about now. This idea that there is just something that you can't hide 
But I think that works less well for me when Bill is so well off. I might have been more interested to see somebody a little more on the back foot, yeah. a little more like uh, like he and uh, his wife at the beginning of the firm, for example. Sure, when sure. they're yeah. almost there and they are so sure that they're going to make it, to then see that they never will might be more interesting. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's a very interesting perspective on this kind of story. I do think that there's a, a validity and honestly an originality to making him the man that he is, that he is by all external accounts successful, that he mm-hmm. has already by all external accounts made it. He has the wife, he has the daughter, he has the thriving business, he has yeah. the million, million, million dollar apartment in Central Park West, yeah, yeah. that he has already made it, but will never be but we'll never. it, will never make yeah. it really into this realm of, of untrammeled power, right? Yeah, yeah. You're right. Unfortunately, from there, it all unravels pretty quickly. He gets to walk through the orgy. We get these POV shots as, yeah, just a lot of simulated sex is happening. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Yeah, both the combination of the present masks and the hordes of people just standing around watching, not in any way interacting, not in any way it seems taking sexual pleasure from what is happening. Maybe like an aesthetic pleasure, maybe Mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah, some kind of economic or authoritative pleasure from what is happening and then of course he is approached again by the young woman who tells him again to leave then by the guard who tells him that the cabbie is is waiting for him are you the man who arrived with the cab waiting outside yeah great yes and we can already feel the wheels coming off before he's ushered back into the grand room where Mm -hmm. now everyone is gathered around this figure in red Mm -hmm. who has some questions for bill harford this is i think very tense i think the sequence does work very beautifully Mm -hmm. in terms of just you know raw emotional filmmaking i think it really works and yeah. i think cruz is great the demasking scene nice. making him feel so vulnerable making yeah. him feel so on the back foot here and demonstrating so powerfully how completely he does not belong mm-hmm. even the fact that everyone else's cloaks are intentionally colored and his is like a dark blue did you notice it's not quite a black cloak it's almost oh. a black cloak it's, I didn't yeah, realize there's that. just a real tension yeah. there that yeah, visibly he he, mm-hmm. he does not belong. Although the nature of that visibility, I think, is is really loaded and, yeah. and really rich. And he is going to have a bad thing happen to him, except then the woman intervenes. She yeah. offers herself, offering to redeem, redeem him. Redeem him. I am ready to redeem him. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. All of this makes sense if this is Mandy. If we can overlook the how do you identify a person, right? If we yeah. do a little bit of legwork, a couple of insert shots here and there just to communicate how she knows that it is really him, mm-hmm. then this works as Mandy and it all makes sense and it all is compelling. And the deliberate anticipation of that conclusion the conclusion to which we would leap Mm -hmm. and the foiling of that conclusion is the film playing games it absolutely Mm. is the woman is led away and bill is warned to never speak of this orgy or investigate further and he returns home and let me tell you a story dear listener of a man a podcaster just a guy like any other who sat down to watch a film on his laptop and take some notes before he recorded a podcast and thought for a moment that this film was about to do something incredibly special. I'm sorry, honey. For a second, this film really knocked me out, and then I realized Mm. that I had been mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) When he goes back home, he walks down the corridor toward the lamp, and there is, for maybe, I don't know, 10 frames of film, Mm -hmm. an eye, a large human eye on the back of his jacket, and it is wildly unsettling. It is supernatural. It is upsetting. Mm-hmm. It is a crazy interposition on top of this film and this cinematic technique. And I was stunned by it. 
only it turns out that it's not an eye. It's a mm. product of the lenses that they were using to shoot with this naturalistic light in all of the sets. And what you're actually seeing is a negatively reflected image of the lamp at the end of the mm. hole, mirrored in the glass of the lens itself, and just happens to be superimposed on his back. Right. Now, did Kubrick see this and decide to keep it because it was awesome and creepy? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But it certainly isn't intentional in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, being a composite special effect. Right. You can see it a little later when he crosses into the living room. Exactly the same things happen with the lights on the Christmas tree mm. across the back of his jacket as well. There it's much more obvious what is happening. Yeah. But it's all to do with the shape of the lamp and the fact that it's inverted light for dark in right. the glass of the lens. It's genuinely really creepy. <laughs> I was I was shook by it when I saw it and, and showed you. And you did. It was like, yeah. this is so exciting. What the hell is this film doing? And yeah, no. <laughs> Nothing, it turns out, is what this film is doing. <laughs> Certainly not supernatural eyeballs indicating that he is either being watched in that moment or that he has been tainted by the Illuminati. <laughs> either of those things would have been better than what we get, which is he goes home. <laughs> Still. <laughs> Bill checks in on his daughter, then he locks away his costume and goes to bed. And now we get Alice's dream, right? He Alice's walks in dream. and she is laughing in her sleep. Mm -hmm. And she then recounts this story at his insistence. Yeah, they are in an abandoned city. They are naked and they are vulnerable. Bill goes off to find clothes for them, providing as a husband does mm -hmm, subtextually. Mm -hmm. And she is suddenly all at once liberated and happy and in a garden and enjoying her nakedness, right? A return mm -hmm. to a state of nature, we might speculate. And then the naval officer appears out of the woods, out of the woods of the Freudian imagination, mm -hmm. right? Out, out of the, the Jungian subconscious right there. He comes to her and they start kissing and they start having sex. And then all at once they are surrounded by people who are watching at first and then joining in. And basically she is recapitulating the orgy that Bill has mm -hmm. just witnessed, except it was only a dream for her. And at the end of that dream... And she, she got to have lots of sex. She got to have lots of sex. And Which she it enjoyed. Is, well, see, that's unclear. I'm not sure that this film is, that's, is that's true. confident enough to assert that, that she, she would enjoyed enjoy it. it. That's yes. true. That's true. So she has a lot of sex. And it seems clear that, that her discomfort in this moment Mm -hmm. is stemming from the fact that she wants in that moment for Bill to see her, that she wants him to feel humiliated, that she wants mm -hmm. actively or inactively to to cuckold him in this yeah. moment, and that she laughs at him, and that that is the laughter that we heard when he woke her from her dream, which, let's rewind to this little moment first. She is laughing in her dream. He comes in and wakes her up and tells her, I thought you were having a nightmare, because he is an asshole. <laughs> because she is... There's no sign of distress or displeasure yeah. from her at all. She is just giggling and laughing happily in her dream. And he wakes her up because he doesn't want her to be experiencing that. It's mm. kind of gross. But yeah, it's just too different from how he's feeling, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Or mm. he's, you know, skeptical that she's dreaming about her her dream lover, which, oh, of course, sure. she is kind of. Kind right? of, yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you make of this dream what is what is going on here it should have been a good dream first of all <laughs> it's weird <laughs> that she cries her way through it she's so full of shame i had sex with so many men i don't even know how many uh all of that is bewildering and sad because yeah it's just so undercut with all of this horrible shame that she's feeling. The shame that she's feeling for even experiencing sexual desire outside of her marriage, right? It, it would seem this is, you're reading yes. this as just a psychological extension of her fantasies about the naval officer? Yes. She seems to have guilt now for not only wanting men outside of her marriage, but also for having sex with multiple men. I think both 
and and especially like at the same time and with you know men she didn't know or whatever sure and then you know Mm-hmm. asterisk here all of like slut culture right, right, <laughs> like, right all of right. this terrible oppression that we leverage against women in particular for for yeah. enjoying multiple partners in multiple combinations yeah the the worst of it for her seems to be the part where she wanted him to see it and she wanted to laugh at him but why did she tell him that part that part, that's what's strange he forces like... her is the thing he says that's not all because oh yeah she's she falters in her retelling and he then demands to be told the so end weird. of the story. Like he wants to know why she is laughing, presumably yeah. expecting that it's going to be something worse, but mm-hmm. or something I don't know, worse from his I don't perspective. From, I don't know yeah. what is worse. Maybe yes. in that case, well, fine, I will tell you. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's so strange. And it does challenge our understanding of her during the getting high scene earlier, during her first yeah. recounting of her sexual fantasy about the naval officer, because this is unforced. This is not a conscious desire to be seen, it would seem to me. She's being compelled in this moment, waking from sleep and recounting this dream does not feel like the same kind of conscious undertaking as telling him yeah, about her well, fantasy earlier in the movie. That's true. But she does also seem to really want and need his comfort and his forgiveness in this moment, too, yeah, yeah. with her body language. Oh, I, I think so. I, I think that that's a pretty consistent thing, right? She does love him. They are in love, I think, with each other. And they are mm. compatible enough domestically. It's sure. the sexual dynamic of their relationship with each other, their relationship with themselves, their relationship mm-hmm. with other people that seems to be underdeveloped, thwarted, I don't know, unrealized, certainly. Unrealized, and certainly yeah. up until this point, unacknowledged. Mm. Is there anything to be made here? You know, I was joking about like the Jungian subconscious there, but is there anything to be made here about her basically experiencing the orgy that he just experienced in her dream? I'm Well, definitely, yeah. And the fact that if he wasn't in the proceedings at all, like she says that she felt better when he left in the dream to go get clothes. Yeah. And presumably, like, if if he had been completely absent, she would have just had a good time, right? I mean, that's the inference, right? Yeah, Yeah, because she can't laugh at him if he is absent from the dream. It's when he returns that she feels compelled to hurt him with her her performance, really, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's it's a complicated one. Yeah, there's a lot there. It makes me wish that we had seen her dream as opposed to just had her recount it yeah how how do you think kidman handles this recounting do you think that her performance here is strong or does it feel a little performance is strong it's just i don't understand why she's crying so much through it i guess like it's maybe a little bit upsetting maybe a little bit embarrassing but she's like really distraught in a way i don't quite understand it does seem to come down to her what we might interpret as a sublimated desire to humiliate bill that it, that it's mm-hmm. about a separation in their life but yeah she's clearly having trouble articulating you know if she has to get high to talk about finding another man even attractive right, right. then she's clearly having trouble realizing and acknowledging and integrating her sexual self mm-hmm. in terms of uh, yeah in terms of this domestic expression of who they really are yeah the next day, Bill goes to the jazz bar, but it is closed. He goes to the diner next door to try and get hold of Nick Nightingale. There's just a lot of shoe leather in this part of the plot. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe aiming for being a little noirish, but it doesn't come off as noirish yeah. as much as it comes off as uh, an engine that can't quite get started. We go to the jazz bar. It's closed. We go next door to the diner. We order coffee. But maybe this is going to be the thread that takes us to the hotel, except then we have to jump ahead to the hotel. And we get Alan Cumming, which is at least very yeah. good. He's very charming, I think. Mm-hmm. In this yeah, he's one. nice. It's so weird to see him be so submissive, so so mm-hmm. secondary in a scene because, you know, one of the things that you associate with Alan Cumming now, I think, is a complete like mastery of his environment sure. that he will outperform anyone that is on the same set as him. And yeah, this is a, this is a weirdly diffident 
performance yes. uh, mm. from coming, but a very charming one, no less. We learn that uh, Nick returned to the hotel in the wee hours, accompanied by two rather large gentlemen and mm-hmm. a bruised eye, and then checked out, presumably to return to Seattle. But we are never going to find out for sure what happened <laughs> to Nick Nightingale. Not until Eyes Wide Shut too. Eyes Slightly Open. Not coming soon to a movie theater near you. <laughs> Bill goes to uh, Mr. Millich to return the costume without the mask, which has mysteriously mm-hmm. disappeared. Millich rings up the bill. Then, then his daughter and the guys from the previous night come out of a back room. He has apparently very happily sold his daughter yes. into some kind of sex work prostitution arrangement. Yep. With these much older Asian men. And then furthermore implies that Bill could also possess her for the right price. Exactly. It's bad news. Awful and gross. It is. I would have cut it. Yeah. But again, it's just the whole, the interrogation of sex in this film is so strange. It makes me, it makes me wonder if Stanley Kubrick ever had sex in his life. Did he have like a family? (laughs) He did. He did. Well, then I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. It is, I guess, charitably what we might interpret here is the kind of sordid diminution of sexual desire into a commercial transaction, right? Mm, We could mm -hmm. maybe interpret Lily Sobieski's, I I would love to give this character a name, but I'm afraid she does not get one. Doesn't have one. Daughter Millich, right? Yeah. If we can interpret her engagement with these men the night before as being something that was spontaneous and authentic and and sprang forth from a mutual desire, right? Mm -hmm. She just really wanted to have sex with these two somewhat older guys, but you know, which is what happened in the first instance, for exactly. sure. Exactly. Well, mm-hmm. uh, speculatively. Speculatively. Yes. I mean, we might be inclined now to infer that it was a setup all the way from the beginning, but who knows? Who can say for sure? But yeah, now that has been commodified. Now that has been taken out of the realm of sexual desire and, and put into the realm of finance and economics, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the ongoing push-pull tug that we get throughout the whole thing, whether it's it's hiring Domino or it's going back to Domino's apartment, which we're about to do, yeah, and, you know, almost having sex with her roommate. That conflict between sexual desire and, what, wealth and privilege in its broadest sense seems to be the thematic heart of this entire film, right? Mm. Like, what is one, what is the other, and how do we mistake the one for the other Mm. seems to be a powerful theme. Would you agree? I think I do agree, yeah. I think what's missing from it might be just the part of sex that is good between two people like you know whether they're just having fun or whether they're having a deep emotional connection we don't see either of those things happen no no and and where we do acknowledge uh, an emotional connection it is yeah it's it's between bill and alice and it's entirely separated from the realm of the sexual until Mm. literally the last line of the film which feels forced and and unhappy and yeah yeah not not good for either one of them and either way, we are talking explicitly about, you know, the, the forcing into prostitution of a 15-year-old girl. I mean, uh, this is bad news. After another fantasy flash of Alice and the naval officer, Bill is brooding at his office before he cancels all of his afternoon appointments and drives back out to the mysterious manor house. Bad uh, news. Why would you do that? Well, yeah, why are you being dumb, Bill? Really bad idea. Dumb, well, okay, dumb, Bill. Let's, let's study this. Why is he doing it, right? Is it about the social mobility? Is it about their being a social class to which he cannot belong. This is why he is so subservient to Victor Ziegler at the Christmas party. This is why he's trying so hard to fit in with those people. That he I don't know. At this... this point, he seems to be wanting to expose them. Oh, that's an interesting interpretation. Like, now he thinks that they've killed Nick Nightingale. Sure, or at potentially. least roughed him up. Yeah. 
uh, he seems to want to get to the heart of what is happening here and expose the people and like bring them to justice is what I'm seeing. He That's seems to be doing real like detective a much work. more traditionally heroic role. Yeah. Which, it's, a, it's a much more anticipated Tom Cruise role yeah. than, you know, descending into an obsession about, yeah, social mobility and, and mm-hmm. sex power. Right. That's that's interesting. I don't sense at this point that he wants to be invited to the party for real. Yes, though it's also not as simple as I am on a quest for justice because after he goes home again and we have that very brief scene very significantly where Alice and Helena are working on her homework and it Mm -hmm. is all about how much money do these boys have? Did you catch that? I did, It's all just calculating the financial worth of these boys in this Mm -hmm. little math word problem. He then lies, Bill lies and goes back out into the city. He goes to his office. He calls Marion, Mm -hmm. the woman who came on to him (laughs) after her father died, obviously, and is thwarted when her fiancé picks up the phone instead. And then he specifically goes to see Domino and brings her a present. And mm-hmm. she's not home either. And he seems absolutely just about ready to settle for her roommate, Sally. Right? He is literally undoing her shirt mm-hmm. before she summons up the courage, apparently believing that he did sleep with right. Domino the night before. She summons up the courage to tell him that Domino has just been diagnosed as HIV positive, which is, of course, the specter that is hanging yes. over the thought of casual sex in the 1990s right Mm -hmm. like if you have casual sex you will die this is not even a a moral predicament this is an issue of of life and death and Mm. it's a terrible thing i don't like the film invoking the specter of hiv at this point it doesn't feel that the film has earned it or that it is going to in any way meaningfully interrogate it Mm -mm. except as a normalizing maneuver a conservative yes. normalizing maneuver to resituate all sexual desire right. within a long-standing monogamous relationship, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't feel great about, no, honestly. Not at all. It's a very prudish movie. It is prudish, right? Yeah. And and again, intentionally. So, mm-hmm. I, I think we're now coming to the understanding intentionally. So, yeah. but to answer those those <laughs> unanswered questions in the reviews that were contemporary with the release of the film, is this film supposed to be sexy? No, no, no. <laughs> Is this film sexy? No, obviously not. But is the film supposed to be? You are maybe supposed to be titillated for a moment, but if you are, you are definitely supposed to feel bad about it. Exactly. You are definitely supposed to feel shame for ogling these women as you mm-hmm. move through the orgy scene, for example. And yeah, that that ultimately, this is a shame-generating mechanism at the yes. heart of this film, which is yes. a thing that fundamentally sucks. That yeah, I completely film that is fundamentally agree. Not shitty, for right? me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not least of all, because it is, you know, shame is a mechanism, particularly shame with regard to sex, is a mechanism of oppression. It's been yes. weaponized against women for, well, for as long as there have been women, yes. right? It's just gross and we shouldn't be doing that. And read. Bill goes out walking again. He determines, I guess, that he is being followed, though whether or not he is being yeah. followed is also kind of pleasantly ambiguous. Uh, I in think a, he's in a, being in followed. But I yeah. think so, too. But yeah. it's, it's, there's a certain tension. It does make there's me wish. There's no one else. You're right. In the streets of New York. Right? Which is creepy, honestly. Mm-hmm. It does make me wish. We talked earlier about Kubrick leaping from genre to genre about never mm. repeating himself. And it does make me kind of wish that he had done at some point just a straight noir thriller. Yeah. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen the what, noir elements are really cool. Particularly with his cinematic skill, I would have loved mm. to see what he could do with the conventions of that genre. From here, I'm glad to say the plot moves pretty quickly. We get 
the stopping at the newsstand, stopping at the coffee shop, finding the news article about the overdose at that point of the former uh, beauty queen. Terrible headline. So confusing. (laughs) What? So deliberately confusingly worded. So deliberately confusingly worded. There is a great little uh, Easter egg in that article, too. If you you studied the the closing text, Mm -hmm. it says that Amanda Curran was known to have a relationship with the fashion designer Leon Vitale. Leon Vitale is a British actor who worked with Kubrick many, many times and who is in this film, the guy in the red cloak at the origin. <laughs> That's, That's so Leon Vitale. Cool. So she was, in yeah. effect, in a relationship. And is that guy in the red cloak Leon Vitale himself? Because we never I, find I, out the identity I, of that knows. person. Interesting, right? Mm. Bill goes to investigate only to learn that Amanda has died. It's good that his medical board card or whatever can get him into any hospital, into yep. any morgue. No security whatsoever nope. here in 1999. <laughs> he goes to examine the body. We get the flashback of her words at the orgy because mm-hmm. it could cost me my life and possibly yours. Connecting these two things together again. <laughs> There's the almost it's so confusing. Kiss. So weird. So weird. So weird. Like we might interpret that it's a desire to sexually possess this woman even in death. But, it doesn't seem uh, sexual, though. I, I don't know. I mean, it could also be interpreted as like, well, like a benediction, right? That he's going to kiss, like kiss her More forehead like and like wish her well. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. a weird More like that. beat to it. It's Still very, weird. very strange and very, very long. Too. Very long. He's then summoned to see Ziegler, <laughs> who pours him scotch, 25-year-old scotch. And yeah. then in this, is a this great set. fantastic set, it's fantastic so set. good. Except the world's weirdest bar. When yeah. he's like, hey, let me pour you a drink. And yeah. he just has a massive table covered with booze. Covered. Like, you have like 1,600 square feet in here, There's no, sir. like mixing glasses. Yeah. There's nary a jigger to be seen. <laughs> so strange. He just takes his liquor neat is what we know from him. And this is where it kind of gets, yeah, unspooled for Bill. You know, mm-hmm. he's offered the opportunity to believe that this is a charade. He's offered the opportunity to believe that it is not true so that he can, by implication, go back to his real life. Believing this comfortable lie right. rather than feeling compelled to confront the truth. We get, as we discussed earlier, that very ambiguous connection between these two characters who are played by different actresses, but are apparently coterminous the one with yeah. the other. And that's weird, too. Mm-hmm. This entire thing is just kind of unsettling. And it ends without real resolution there, I think. Does this work for you as a way of resolving the mysteries of the film or does it only heighten the mysteries of the film or are you at this point so disinterested in the mysteries of the film that you're looking at the running time yeah yeah a little bit disinterested i am satisfied with the girl from the party being mandy that makes sense for me and i like it it does make sense narratively yes yes. and i need something in this film to make sense narratively (laughs) so i'm happy to get that little bone to chew on uh, what doesn't work for me is when he immediately goes home and just starts like sobbing i'm like my guy (sighs) It's the it's the the mask on the pillow though, isn't it? It's the proof that someone was in his apartment. Surely the mask is yeah. staged there as a veiled threat, mm-hmm, right? That mm-hmm. this is yes. You'd better look out because we can get access to you, your home, your wife, your child at any point. Mm-hmm. So it's all a charade. It's all it's all just a fake thing. You know, it's really just like a role playing thing that we do. You know, <laughs> we've all had these character sheets that we've had for like fifteen years. We go, a couple people have sex, yes, just like any role playing group. Don't tell me that they don't. <laughs> But really, it's just a thing we do, you know, up at a manor house in the Hudson River Valley every six months or so. Yeah, the mask on the pillow absolutely removes the possibility that yeah. he can go on with his life believing that it was a charade. This is this is a, an explicit threat. But then why why would Ziegler try to have just just so he stops? I wonder if it's Ziegler. I wonder if it's him 
I wonder if they are at odds here, right? Because mm-hmm. Ziegler's feeling threatened that he was the one who invited Nick Nightingale into their arrangement. He was the one who uh, recommended him. And right now, as now. he says, he looks like an asshole. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he's going to look like even more of an asshole if his buddy, the doctor, managed to Shanghai his way into yeah. this party. It's, yeah, I don't know is the answer. But I also don't buy just this emotional breakdown and, and confession mm-hmm. here at the end. Though I'll the, tell you everything. The very yeah. hard cut from I'll tell you everything to Nicole Kidman looking like she's been up all night smoking yeah. a cigarette yeah. with like fuck you eyes. Yeah. Ooh, that, is a, that is the hardest cut in that modern cinema. Yeah. It's so brutal. Yeah. And then good. they take Helena out to a toy store because we're back in like, like capitalism and the expenditure mm-hmm. of wealth, right? We're back into the purchasing of trinkets that will bring momentary joy. Right. And it's really about your power over the thing rather than having the thing itself. Alice says they should be grateful that they've survived these, quote, adventures, whether they were real or only a dream. Maybe they won't have forever, but they do need to do something as soon as possible, which is, Elizabeth? Fuck. Bad line or worst line? Uh, bad emotional resolution or worst emotional resolution i i mean it fe- it's like it's supposed to be ironic is it supposed to be funny is it supposed to be flirty no i think it's the acknowledgement from alice that they are people possessed of sexual desire and the only safe outlet for that sexual desire is the person that you are married to so they uh, had better have sex awful. with each other because if they're not having sex with each other they might be tempted to be led astray and that is a world of danger and death Ooh. again Super conservative. So prudish. So conservative. Yeah. Ick. Not so great, maybe. And now I have to try and encourage you to be gentle with this film as we put it on the list (laughs) of every Tom Cruise movie ever. Can you give me any insight as to how Mm. you're feeling? Just just an emotional response to this film before we try and compare it to the others. Yeah. The the production design and the cinematography of this film are so gorgeous that it's going to bump it up. Like, it's an art film. And I just think an art film gets more credit than, you know, something that would be, say, way on the bottom of the list, because otherwise that's where I would put this movie. So it's going to go at least up into like the interesting territory. Right now, I'm thinking somewhere around where The Outsiders was. The Outsiders currently number 10 on the list. See, yeah, which is roughly in the middle. So that makes a lot of sense to the me. The Outsiders yeah. are currently right underneath Far and Away. And I guess that See? that's an yeah. interesting point of comparison. Yes. Right? Far and Away is a film with obvious problems, narrative and stridently political. Right. How do we feel about this film versus Far and Away? And mm. An interesting contrast, too, between directors, right? Because yeah. Because you've got... A very ambiguous and experimentalist filmmaker on the one hand and the safest Mm -hmm. pair of hands in Hollywood on the other. So how do you think those compare? I think Far and Away is better. I think Far and Away is just more satisfying. When you watch it and you get to the end, you feel like, yeah, okay, that was a movie. And when you watch (laughs) it and you get to the end of Eyes Wide Shut, I feel like you're just, I I feel a little bit like I was in the pit of despair. (laughs) I've just sucked one year of your life away. Like, there's just a little... I I don't feel good having watched this movie. I can see that. I I really do. And I think that if we're looking at this as just a conventional piece of of narrative Mm -hmm. filmmaking, that, yeah, I I might even be tempted to put it lower on the list than that. For me, it gets something of a pass because I think that it is interesting. And I think that the ideas that Mm -hmm. it's contending with are interesting. And I think that for all we've discussed this film being a conservative parable about sex the fact that we end in such a bleak place 
to me opens the possibility that Kubrick himself is not co-signing that interpretation no, no, no. of the film. I, I, that he I actually agree. thinks yeah. that regressive sexual, you know, politics it's are harmful, and that yes. maybe everyone should just be going to wild bacchanals from time to time. Though those bacchanals should probably be more of the you know, Ziegler Christmas party than right. the mysterious orgy in the forest. Kind yes. Of, you know, yes. Sort. Uh, so I'm not sure about it. And I think, I think there's a lot there. I think it's interesting. I might be tempted, but honestly, yeah, we're not that far apart because I might be tempted to put it above far and away, right underneath legend, because if mm-hmm. I think we're talking about sublimated sexual desire, yeah, yeah. it sits companionably along legend. And yeah. Yeah. Unlike and for the, production the, design, it sits companionably too. Yeah. Unlike yeah. the relatively chaste uh, far and away. I think that this film is neither, and this is perhaps the most damning thing that you can say about it, it is neither an outright travesty or a work of unimpeachable genius. It is a fine film that does some interesting things mm-hmm. and ultimately leaves a sour taste in the mouth. Yeah. Is kind of where I'm yeah. coming from, which is actually very much how I felt about Far and Away now that I say it. <laughs> <laughs> So I will leave it to you. Above or below, far and away, that's underneath legend or above the outsiders. That feels to me to be about yeah, right. Yeah, about where we live. Yeah. Let's put it under far and away. We also get okay. that nice dream sequence. It's not a dream sequence, but it feels so dreamy when they're in, this is in far and away, when they're in the rich house together. Yeah, Pretend sure. that you love me. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to say that's better. That scene alone, better than okay. Eyes Wide Shut. All right. Well, there it is. And kind of, I don't know, a disappointing end to this era mm. of Tom Cruise's career, I suppose. Though it's much less of a marked turning point than many people apprehend it to be. We still have to close out the 20th century. We still have to close out 1999. Next week on the show, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. PTA's a director that you kind of like, right? We're going to go into next week's movie definitely wanting it. We're going yeah, <laughs> to yeah, go want with yeah, yeah, yeah. an open heart and a positive mind as we mm-hmm. always try to. Yeah, I really enjoyed Phantom Thread. I just thought it was so weird and wonderful. Yeah. And then we watched Licorice Pizza and I was like, okay, sure. Licorice Pizza does not hang together well. And it's has for me some challenges either. at its heart, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's certainly there's some interesting stuff happening there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, seeing seeing what PTA can do with Tom Cruise while Cruise is still in this era of yeah. submitting himself to the will of you know the great directors of yeah. the period, I think it's going to be a very interesting I'm interested for sure. Too. So that's going to be next week on The Last Star in Hollywood. Normally at this point in the show, we thank our wonderful superstar patrons. But yes. as we discussed on last week's show, we're recording a little bit in advance. So mm-hmm. if you have just signed up for the Patreon at patreon.com slash next word and pledged your support, we probably won't get to your name this week, but we will make up for it when we come back. When Elizabeth mm-hmm. returns from your sojourn in L.A. Yes. to your, your work trip out there to shoot a movie, mm-hmm. then we'll catch up with everything then. Would you like to thank our existing superstar patrons? I would indeed. Our thanks and gratitude to Leslie Skipa, Louise in Dallas, Megan Lauder, Phoebe, Art Kilmer, Kimberly Bear, and Self on a Shelf. Guys, thank you so much for your support. You make all of this possible. And I promise that if we ever throw a mysterious party in a manor house up in the forest, you'll all be invited. The password is Fidelio. And if you, dear listener, would like to pledge your support, you can head on over, as I said, to patreon.com slash nextword, where you can find bonus episodes of this show, bonus episodes of my literary podcast, Stars and Swords. Oh, and a new insider, unscripted, unedited podcast where we talked about musical episodes of TV shows that we like. (laughs) That was a ton of fun. That was a lot of fun. Do you want to know what our favorite musical episode of a TV show is? The answer (laughs) might surprise you. Head on over to patreon.com slash nextword. That's going to do it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with Magnolia. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 